3: Looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 three six seven five so sit back relax and remember southern sense is common sense
1: Just call 888-441-7290 or go to southerncents.com You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for my patriot food. If you want to insist, you can still go to 888 888- 441 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome to another crazy Friday. You're here listening to Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, and also now today live on WCET out of a- of Columbia, South Carolina iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube Facebook, oh the heck with it <laughs> You want to listen in Just <laughs> join me on Southern Sense Put a dash in the middle of southern hyphen sense dot com I'm your hostess with <clears> the <throat> hostess the radio chickadee Annie <laughs> along with my co-host right. Curtis, S. Bennett, Curtis Oh boy we got ourselves a rock and rolling show today don't we
4: Yes we do um, and we're we had quite an interesting week here in Florida. As you know, the um, RNC pulled out of Jacksonville, which disappointed me to a degree. And then my my favorite congressman, Ted Yoho, got into a verbal spat with AOC. I mean, what else can go right?
1: <laughs> oh, poor Ted. And the funny thing is, he didn't hurl that epitaph directly at her. He made a comment as he passed her, supposedly. And the only one that heard this comment was her. So she's got to have really super sensitive hearing. And as I heard someone else mention, I had a crack up. Whatever happened to sticks and stones will break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. If that was the worst thing that ever was said by a congressman, I would be. Very surprised. As a matter of fact, there happened to have been a very famous senator from here. The great state of South Carolina was so incensed with his Republican opponent that he went after him, beating him with his cane. So we've seen oh, yeah. the members of the Senate and the House do very strange things. So if the worst possible thing for Ted to have done was to curse her out, geez. And you know what? They're using it as an excuse to not move any legislation across the House floor, the Democratic-controlled House floor. So it's another excuse to make a tempest in a teapot.
4: So true. And um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was the late um, Congressman um, Lewis who had claimed that somebody in the Tea Party had spat at him you know and they could find no evidence of anybody, you know, spitting. It
0: yeah, just goes yeah, to show how was.
4: they will make things up.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. No, it was on the steps of uh, of Congress. They were doing that famous protest with Nancy Pelosi holding that huge one-ton gavel. That's an exaggeration, folks. Yes, just a little satire here. <laughs> that huge gavel in her arms as she stood on the house steps. And Someone that was a member of the Tea Party happened to walk past, and because they were wearing whatever they were wearing, Congressman Lewis claimed he was spat at by them. They played the tape backwards and forwards and upside down. It never happened.
0: Mm -hmm. So you know what?
1: Ted Yoho was on our show just recently. He is a gentleman. He is a wonderful guy. Uh, he's a friend of this show, which once he retires from Congress will be on probably a lot more frequently. Curtis, um, he may start his own show because I put a little buzz in his ear. <laughs> but you know, <laughs>
0: you
1: know, he's not running for a re-election, so why are they going after him? He's not someone well, that I see that is going to challenge.
4: I think she likes being in the headlines. AOC, that is.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, it seems like there's a little bit of a problem with the butt on um, on this, so I'm going to try just one little thing that might help clear it up. Uh, because the setting was changed on my Skype, so I'm going to try to change that setting back to what it was originally when you were. Excuse me. able to hear me? And let me. Yeah, just do I can hear you. But it's seeming that uh, th- that they're not able to hear on this one, so I'm changing the setting. So hopefully that will help uh, clear it up.
0: Mm.
4: Yeah, sure. should. <laughs> me. I mean, so, how technical can it get these days with BTR? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Believe
1: me, pretty technical, pretty pretty much technical. <laughs> so I changed the setting on Skype. Hopefully, and I apologize. I've had this persistent cough, and uh, don't worry. I've already talked to my doctor. They're working on it. I think it's probably something to do with allergies or the heavy humidity that we have here. So um, hopefully that this will this will bring everything back to uh, normal. Apply that setting over here too. So hopefully. There you go. You he, he can hear us both. Okay, so I know what the setting is, which would prevent someone from using Skype to call into my personal number on Skype when I'm doing the show. And they're going to have to, in the future, call the 917 number that BTR supplies me. Mm-hmm. So I can't do. So I can't do that. Unfortunately. So I know what the problem is, and um, I'll discuss it with you later, Doug. Anyway. Excuse me. Again I have to apologize. I've got to take a sip of water. Mm. Actually I think I need a oh, shot of is, scotch.
4: Yeah, <laughs> this is almost like being on the space shuttle or something like Houston. We have a problem, you know. <laughs> and well, then at least you I need repair. I, I
1: understood what the problem is But we got ourselves a a jam packed show. Our friend um Clarence McKee is gonna be joining us again. Um, he has now contributed to Newsmax. Uh, that's going to be followed by Dr. Brian Mark Rigg, Rig. I'm sorry, not Rib Rig. Uh, retired USMC. He's got a new book out called Flamethrower, and it's extremely interesting. It's quite a tome. And then we're going to have your friend, Put- Putnam County Sheriff Gator deloche on. And we're going to close off with the Heritage Foundation returning to the show, Jonathan Butcher. So, as I try to take a deep breath, (laughs) wow, this is going to be a little hard to do, the uh, dedication. Mm. But those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And it's going to be a little tough for me. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'll probably have to slow my speech down a little bit, but we'll get it done. And today's show is going out to Florida State Trooper, Florida Highway Patrol, I should say, Trooper Joseph John Bullitt. His end of watch was Wednesday, February 5th of this year. And this is from MySunCoast.com. Uh, by staff writers and they put this together. On Friday, February 5th, the Martin County Sheriff's Office released more information about the fatal shooting of Trooper Joseph Bullock, who was laid to rest in Sarasota National Cemetery. Sheriff William Snyder started the press conference by thanking the public for their outpouring of support and asked that everyone keep the Bullock family and all families involved in their thoughts and prayers. With that, he launched into the timeline of events. It was the morning of February 5, 2020, and the 42-year-old Trooper Bullock, an Air Force veteran and 19-year veteran of the Florida Highway Patrol, was on duty along I-95. At 9.09 a.m., he stopped in the northbound lanes near Mile Marker 107 in Palm City to help a disabled motorist. The timeline video shows a brief interaction. Trooper, Trooper Bullock appears comfortable as he approaches 30-year-old Franklin Reed III and speaks to him and then leaves. At 9:15, the motorist calls 911 to report an accident with a vehicle in the grass. That call is sent to the Florida Highway Patrol, and Trooper Bullock responds, pulling up to Reed's vehicle at 10:12 a.m. Between 10:12 tw- and 11:18 a.m., Trooper Bullock remains on the scene with Reed waiting for a tow truck driver. Then things become chaotic. Sheriff Snyder says the events that happened next overlapped with multiple things happening simultaneously in short period of time. But it starts at 11.18 a.m. when the tow truck company calls 911 to say Trooper Bullock had been shot and Reed was now trying to shoot the tow truck driver who was running away from Reed down the highway. Dispatchers immediately sending all available units to the scene. In the meantime, a motorist heading south sees the tow truck driver running and the Florida Highway Patrol vehicle and pulls a U-turn into the northbound lanes to investigate. At 11.19 a.m., the motorist pulls up to the scene. Trooper Bullock had been shot and killed and is visible right near the door of his vehicle, when the motorist shuts off his car and the driver's dash cam ends. At the same moment, a second driver stops and, realizing what's happening, calls 911. He tries to get the Bullock, but is stopped by gunfire. Also, in that same moment of time, an off-duty detective from Rivera Beach Police drives past sees what appears to be a suspicious scene, so he stops to help. He's wearing a clearly marked police vest and calls 911 after seeing Trooper Bullock on the ground. As he's speaking to the dispatcher, the detective can be heard ordering Reed to the ground. Then gunfire breaks out. The detective yells at Reed to drop the gun before more rounds can be heard. Then a pause the detective believing Reed was actually the tow truck driver tells the dispatcher that Reed had shot himself in the head. Investigators determined Reed shot at least twice at the detective, with the detective firing multiple rounds in return. One of the detective's bullets struck Reed in the center of his chest, and the sheriff's office says it would have been fatal. But Reed turned the gun on himself, ending his own life. Less than a minute later, the sheriff's office helicopter arrives on scene and begins to record what's happening on the ground. The detective checks Reed and Trooper Bullock, and you can see Reed's vehicle is still in the grass near the tow truck at an askew angle from when Trooper Bullock first saw the vehicle at 9.09 a.m. At 11.26, Trooper Bullock was declared Signal 7, which means dead on scene. Investigators believe, based on records with the tow company's dispatch, that Reed was upset with the tow bill, so he walked up to Trooper Bullock's car and shot him in the head. The tow truck driver told investigators that Reed did not have money to pay for the tow, but Reed's vehicle had already been hooked which means he would be billed. Trooper Bullock was waiting on scene while the tow truck driver and Reed worked out an arrangement. Before shooting Trooper Bullock, the tow truck driver says he saw Reed walk over to the patrol car, believing without fear that Reed was informing Trooper Bullock a deal had been reached. Instead, the tow truck driver says Reed shot Trooper Bullock in the head while he sat in his car shooting him at point-blank range. Authorities say Reed tried then to shoot the tow truck driver, but his gun jammed, giving the tow truck driver the window he needed to run towards the southbound lanes to seek help. The sheriff's office says other than a theft at a retail store the day before killing Trooper Bullock, Reed had no documented criminal history. Trooper Bullock was laid to rest on February 13th. Thousands gathered to pay their respects, lining the route from the Robert Tail and Sons funeral home to Bayside Community Church in Bradenton. When it's close to home, it hurts a little bit extra. And this one was really a sincere gun punch to me, said Sergeant Dill O'Brien with the Florida Highway Patrol Troop G. He always wanted to be a cop like his father, said Florida Highway Patrol Colonel Gene Spaulding. Although the Air Force veteran worked a nearly two-decade career on the other coast of Florida, Trooper Bullock's family is from Englewood, and he was laid to rest at the Sarasota National Cemetery. He leaves behind his sisters and his parents. Today's show is dedicated to Trooper Bullock. It is also dedicated to all of the brave men and women that serve as first responders. From the birth of this nation through today and into its future, we also dedicate to all of our military who serve and protect each and every one of us. And we dedicate to all of them by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
2: I stand for My respect for humanity Now I'm challenged by time.
1: That. You're, you're listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR News, the Lone Star Daily News, as well as now broadcasting live on WCETFM out of Columbia, South Carolina. Also on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio. And, of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chickadee Annie, you bellas, with a kitty cat clawing at my leg, along with my (laughs) co-host, author of over two dozen books, Curtis C.S. Bennett. All right, Curtis, we're going to have our buddy, Clarence McGee, call in. You know, it's funny, um, I've been doing this show now for... This this month marks our 10th anniversary. Believe it or not, wow. 10 years doing this year and running.
4: 10 years. And, you
1: know, it, it's funny. Uh, yeah, because when I, I contact the RNC, my friend over there, Gabriella, and God bless it. Gabriella, if you're listening, thank you for the hard work you do on our behalf and all the other broadcasters out there and getting the message out, the Trump message. But she sends me people as representatives and spokespersons of the RNC, and how many of them have been previous guests on our show? And I, I, I had a laugh. She says, Clarence McKee. And I says, oh, I know Clarence. He's, I think the first time he came on the show was like eight years ago. So, you know, it's it's funny how small the world is, how these circles are just are really small circles. Because uh, yeah. we all interact because we are active in getting the word out, the message of the conservative uh, the conservative American. I don't even want to say wow. Republican right now we've got we've got the Lincoln Republicans. Oh good Lord, get, don't get me started on those damn fools.
4: and you got the Mitt <laughs> the Romney Rom- Republicans. The
1: Justin Amash's, yeah. Oh, the Yeah. George Wills. <laughs>
4: George Wills. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Never tell Trumpers. You what's
4: other guy named? The- Bill Crystal. Yeah. Never Trumpers. Yeah. But you said 10 years ago. That yeah. was the age yeah, 10 of um, Tea Party, 2010. Yes.
1: I started this show one year after we formed our Tea Party. And our Tea Party is active, despite the fact the COVID virus is out there. And if you're in the sound of my voice here in South Carolina, I'm going to ask you to go to the BufordTeaParty.com website. Buford, B-E-A-U-F-O-R-T. Dot com, And on that page, if you are in the great state of South Carolina, scroll down just a little bit, you'll see a petition to a, um, oh shoot, what the heck is that? Change.org. Uh, there's a change.org petition on this specifically for the state of South Carolina. There is a movement in here to make mail-in voting not requiring a second validation an independent validation that you are the person that is signing that ballot and usually it has to be by a poll worker or a notary and so they're trying to make it so that we could have mail in voting without anyone verifying that the ballot that is being sent is by the actual voter so please dot party.com b e a u f o r t T-T-E-A party, P-A-R-T-Y, com. If you are in the state of South Carolina, go to that page, sign the petition. And we've got to – we're going to present it to Governor McMasters. I know he's not going to allow anyone to do anonymous mail-in voting because he is a good conservative. But it just let's get our voices out there and let the other side know there are just as many people opposing – voter fraud as those that want truth in voting. But we got our next guest in on the chat room here. Uh, Chat room. Good Lord, I'm losing my mind in the studio. (laughs) Welcome back to the show, our friend Clarence McKee. Good afternoon, Clarence. How are you doing? How are you? I am doing fine. I mean, I'm doing just great. I, I was... When Gabriella had sent your name over to me, I said, Gabriella, I know Clarence. He's been a frequent guest on the show. We love him. And I had a thing Oh, back to you're the so kind. I've I love you. But I, I realized it, the first time you ever appeared on here was eight years ago. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Like, Holy cow.
3: <laughs> Gee, I was only 28, huh? 25. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was 12. <laughs> <laughs>
4: How's, How's it going, doing? Fine. Just fine. Great Good to hear your voice again. Great, great. Great Good to, to have you on you.
1: the show. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's always fun to have you because whenever I get you on, the world seems to go a little bit bat ape, to say it politely. There's other words I want to throw in there. Really. But, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I I, I actually, I don't even know where to start because I was making my notes last night, and this is how my notes notes read to talk to you. And you know I do everything off the top of my head. I thought the notes read exactly this. Dems hope to erase racist past, dash, BLM, arrow, Marxism, space, NBA, dash, slavery, and then Planned Parenthood. Now, let's put this all together,
3: Clarence. (laughs) <laughs> All together Well, where do you want to start? I'll tell you Let's talk about the um, the mobsters in this country uh, uh, The anarchists um, The President of the United States did such a great thing this week With his Operation Legend To go into these cities mm-hmm. And to clean them up and to help local law enforcement And no matter what the media tells you Uh, that this is an invasion, or the Democrats and Pelosi. Listen, ATF, Alcohol and Tobacco Firearms, the Drug Enforcement Administration, they've been working with local cops for 30 years, so it's not an invasion. But here's what's happening, and Bill Barr said it correctly uh, this week. You know, in the inner cities today, 7,500 black kids are killed every year. Have you heard any black congressional leaders Democratic leaders say anything about this? The President of the United States is the one, you might say he's coming he's the cavalry, going to help these poor black communities that are being just, kids are getting slaughtered. And I saw a guy on TV the other day outside of that funeral home that it, where they were shooting it up, and he said, we need federal help, so he, he's doing a great job. And I just, just imagine, CS and Annie, what if these were 600 white kids who were shot? The whole world would be calling for for troops, but the black community needs to speak up and say thank you to Mr. Trump for coming to our rescue. It's really, really needed. And what's going on over there in um, Portland is a disgrace. The law says very clearly that our um, bases, our federal courthouses and federal buildings – shall be protected by federal authorities. That's exactly what's happening. And, you know, the media, if you take a look at this sometimes, if you watch all three channels, you don't see a lot of what's going on in Portland. They're too busy criticizing the president. So it's, it's just a shame. And, it's, and what's really ironic, and CNS uh, CS and I have talked about this, it started out to be a valid protest uh, in memory of George Floyd and police abuse in certain places. This has been totally hijacked by the Black Lives Movement, founded by Marxists, totally hijacked by Antifa. And look at those crowds tearing down the statues in Chicago and places. There are a lot of little rich white kids. They can come in during the night, wreak havoc, have a few black kids around them. Then daylight comes, they run home and change their clothes and come out in the street and nobody knows who they are. And blacks take the brunt of this. So I just hope people wake up, and I'm glad the president's, doing what he's doing, to um, send in the um, cavalry to help, because it's needed. And these mayors, the reason you don't hear anything from the black caucus and the Democrats, because they're all run by Democrat mayors. They haven't said a thing. It's amazing. And I think it's like these polls saying that Trump's going to get really beaten. I'll bet you anything that there are a lot of black people in, people in these cities who aren't going to tell you but in November, they're going to vote for Donald Trump. They're not going to vote for the Democrats at all. And that's another story on the polls, but that's what's going on. I mean, it's just a shameful mob rule, anarchist. Gosh, at least we got a good president. And you know, you know, know. Biden was around and Pelosi. Oh, my gosh. This would be magnified a dozen times.
4: Oh, yeah. You know,
1: go ahead, Curtis, because uh, I, I, well, I watched just... the other day the the father the 28 year old father just walking his four year old daughter down the street and you watch and and it broke it broke my heart this father was doing anything and everything when he hits the curb he stops he looks both ways to make sure he's not going to walk his daughter into traffic into and I watch him double check both ways then step off the curb he's halfway across the street and brutally executed I'm not going to say shot I'm going to say executed it was an execution and And you
3: saw the little girl run away crying and screaming that that broke my heart oh gosh and do you think the Bellasio and anybody they're going to do anything about it no not at all but they can paint Black Lives Matter on the street and they can call Donald Trump
0: all kinds of names
1: uh, fund the cops yeah. and get rid of the anti-crime unit that used to do so much good work. Now Clarence, you know, I'm retired NYPD and I, oh, I really? remember these guys. Yes. So when I saw this and I saw the, the hands of the cops being cuffed and not being oh. able to do their job and then have a whole entire unit that was so successful, and getting drugs and other crimes off the street because they were anti-crime. They did go out there in plain clothes. Yes, they wore gotcha. shields around their necks, but they were able to do things that we, as uniform cops, couldn't do. And oh, wait a minute! That, now this is this this is the new movement that you know. Instead, you're going to get a social worker to respond to a rape. Huh. Yep. Because the rapist is no longer on the scene. They want civilians now to do car stops.
5: Oh, well, that's going to be I fun. I'm telling great you.
3: You're going to risk really? your life. You're going to risk your life. You know, the, criminals would never know on the street. It's like the old mafia guys. They never knew who was the undercover cop. They never knew it. Now, they don't have to worry that there are none there, you see. That's the danger, and it hurts everybody. It's, and, and the other part but of no, this. Uh, is that they want to take cops out of schools. Are you kidding me? Uh, that is horrible. The only the only safe place some kids have is in school. You know, they get their, you got 30 million kids getting school lunches, another 13 million getting um, school breakfast, and the president says open the schools. So does uh, many other, the variety, I guess the majority of experts around the country saying keep our schools open. Trump says they should do that. But guess who's opposed to it? The good old teachers' unions, you know? The reason you don't have progress in education is <laughs> the teachers' unions. They hold up everything. And you're an ex-cop. Some of the police unions are doing doing a good job, but sometimes they protect the bad cops too. Same thing with the teachers' unions. Now, they want the schools closed. They want the schools closed. So who's it going to punish? Poor black parents? They can't afford daycare workers. They have to go to work, you know? You know, some of these little... Wealthy little guys and uh, elitists and privileged people can, oh, we'll have you tutored by Georgie, our friend, or we'll put you on, in an online school. A lot of these kids in the Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Harlem don't have computers and are not proficient online. And Lifeline, the school is their only lifeline. It's really, really a shame. And if the head of the CDC says, let's go back to school, we should go back to school. The president's right. But this is because the president said it. If Donald Trump had a said, we're going to keep the schools closed, teachers' unions would have said, no, let's keep them open. They want to make it look so bad and make the things so bad in this country that they're going to be so hurting they're going to try to get rid of the president. He's going to fool them. He's going to fool them
1: what And Curtis can attest to this because, Curtis, you used to work as a social worker, one of the many careers you've had in your past life. Um, so you understand that when kids are kept out of school, teachers and sometimes the staff of the school would be the first line that would recognize child abuse, would only yes. recognize medical conditions that these kids are going through, would also be the first line of defense in uh, seeing where drugs and other uh, uh, addictions or criminal activities would be occurring. So they would be the first line of defense to recognize where certain interventions would be necessary, which would bring yes. the SRO, the safety resource officer, the police officer, yes. into the situation. And 95% of what a real police officer does is social work. The exactly. Other At the risk of their life. Yeah. Right, and if Curtis, really- you can attest to this, right?
4: Oh yeah, and now they want um, social workers to respond to domestic um, oh. issues, and These that's always a dangerous color, thing for law enforcement. Yeah, I like oh. to see that one. But you, you know, the Democrats. Me
5: something-
4: yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Democrats. I don't know. They seem so so intent on um, and so focused on removing things that are, you know, related to slavery and things and like statues and names of schools and God. and yep. bases, you know, military bases with racist, yes. you know, generals' names, that they're not really dealing with the real issues. And um, exactly I like right. it that there was a representative, Louis um, Gomery that was um, on the, the floor of the, the House yesterday saying that, and it's something I've been saying for a long time, that the Democrat Party should um, be dismantled because they are, I mean, they are the architects of slavery. Oh, that was slavery.
1: Louis Gohmert. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Louis and Gohmert. slavery.
3: That's true. They're, they're just horrible. You know, they're the fathers of the KKK. And, you know, yeah. you were both earlier about the cry, the fighting, the slaughter in Chicago and places, do you realize that eight years of Obama, and I might as well say Obama and Biden, they didn't lift a hand to do anything.
4: Didn't and, do uh, a thing.
3: No, I might put a plug in here. Have, my new book's come out in about two weeks. It's called How Obama Failed Black America and How Trump is Helping It. And it keys in on all these things that uh, the Democrats are against. School choice, right? They're, uh, they're pro-abortion. All the things that really um, have harmed black folks. Uh, it's a shame. And Biden sits there calling the president a racist. I guess he's never heard of Woodrow Wilson my gosh, and they're just placating black people, you know, they think we're all fools. Not, gosh, I get so burned up about it, and I'm glad the president takes the gloves off against Sleepy Joe. Well,
1: well, Clarence, there's two things I want to note, because if you remember, Obama ran on the platform the first time stating that he would place his children into public school. Uh-huh. And as soon as he got into office, what did he do? He put them in private school. Now you mentioned Joe Biden saying that Trump is a racist. He's the first president that was a racist. Oh, uh. he whiz. Uh let's see. Andrew Jackson, who was the founder of the Democratic Party, also mm. was the one that was responsible for the Indian Trail exactly. of Tears. All right, that was number one. Number two James Polk, who while he was president, proceeded in the White House, he was doing this, he bought slaves for his Mississippi plantation, okay, Mm -hmm. both Democrats. Andrew Johnson, who took office after Lincoln was assassinated, refused to acknowledge the land grants given to former slaves or acknowledge the 14th Amendment, Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. Democrats. Yes. Woodrow Wilson resegregated federal government employees, especially the postal workers, and yes. demoted anyone that was black. And exactly. then he then premiered the film Birth of the Nation, which Gen- was a pro H- KK for- movie.
3: Exactly. And you must have read my new article a month ago because I talked about all of that. The ex- you're exactly no,
1: right.
0: No, not
1: This is my research. Now, let's go with For LBJ, who you. never failed no. to find a, a reason to use the N-word. And the only Absolutely. reason why he went to the Civil Rights uh, Amendment legislation is because it brought him votes. It got the exactly. vote, and he was approached by Martin Luther King, Sr., that said, I will deliver you 600,000 black votes if you get this legislation passed. And unfortunately, Martin Luther King, Sr. was a great man, but in that yeah. one instance, he sold out the black vote. And yeah, did not that good
3: old LBJ telling somebody? Democrats. Exactly. If we, if we get this bill passed, and we'll, they, they, they'll, they, you know what, will vote for us for the next 70 years.
4: And then what do we do? (laughs) 200 years. Yep. 200. Exactly. I'll have those those (laughs) so-and-so voting Democrat for the next 200 years. Exactly, C.S. You're so right.
1: Right. And Chief reminds me, I I skipped over one, and that was my mistake. I I have it down on my sheet. FDR and the internment camps.
0: Yeah, yeah. and the
1: anti-engine
3: bill he never wanted to support. Exactly.
1: And they don't class, teach that. You know, all these teachers knows. don't teach that. Nope. Uh, no, it's, that's six presidents, all Democrats, all avowed racists, not one exactly. a Republican.
0: I don't, Joe
3: Biden, I tell you. And you know what burns me up so many times? Uh, you have a Republican on television, black or white, and these pundits and hosts will tear him up. You let Biden and these liberals get on TV or somebody who's a, their so-called uh, co- contributor who's a, a left-wing black, they won't challenge them one minute. They just let them talk and talk and talk. But you let C.S. Bennett go on, or Annie, they'll jump on everything you say. It's just very unfair media, and that's why I think you get these polls, because all the people are reading and hearing about is bad, 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 bad Trump. Not true, because people aren't going to tell them the truth. And I can't wait for him to get a 49-state land uh, sweep. Land.
4: <laughs> yeah, landslide. You're yeah, like um, Reagan uh, did. Slam. <laughs> oh.
1: Now uh. let's, let's go back. where my originally thing was was my notes here: BLM, Moxley, oh. NBA, and slavery. Now.
3: Okay, NBA. I think NBA, it's a- N- okay.
1: Bow down to Black Lives Matter. Correct. And they're all kneeling for the national anthem, but the Black Lives Matter was created by a vowed Marxist who had actually Marxism training. So the NBA is catering to this Black Lives Matter, but at the same time they're catering to China. Okay, now Black exactly. Lives Matter is you slave you you enslaved us, so now you owe us, and yet China practices outright. Slavery By imprisoning Genocide, the Uyghurs, Uyghurs, the Christians, the political prisoners, of uh, the Fulangang, and using them in concentration camps as slave labor for companies like Nike.
3: Exactly. So Forced abortions and sterilizations
0: labor.
1: over
0: there
1: in those camps. Exactly. Shame. As far as whatever the United States practiced more than 130 years ago. How long is this? One hundred forty, hundred, almost a hundred and fifty-five years ago,
0: yes.
1: and they're still doing it actively now. on the bronze that. <laughs> but you, you got Mark uh, Cuban with these
0: multi-billion-dollar
1: oh. companies. He's all across the globe, catering to China, getting into a pissing contest with Ted Cruz. Exactly. That didn't work out too well for him. Did it? <laughs> So, Mark Cuban, you're supporting slavery.
3: NBA, you're supporting slavery. Well, well, somebody ought to say that. A bit loud and clear, just like you. And, you know, putting these Black Lives Matter labels on the back of your uniform, that's going to divide the country even more. Who wants to go to a basketball game and read political statements on somebody's doggone jersey? No way. And I think what the president said's right, you know, kind of unpatriotic not to uh, stand for the for the national anthem. And now they're going to play. Well, I'm not going to get into all these things, but it's just dividing the country more. They're the ones who are dividing the country. The people on the left, purposely. Planned Parenthood. That's the important. other one you mentioned too. Uh, they're a bunch of uh, yes. ooh, genocidal people. More blacks are aborted in New York City. I still think it's the facts. Are true the facts are the same. More are aborted in New York City than are born live. So horrible, uh, just disgraceful, and Planned Parenthood, right? It's just dis- – so that's the other thing. So if
1: Black Lives Matter a- so much, why aren't, we, why aren't we asked talking about Black-on-Black crime or Planned Parenthood? Exactly. The execution of innocent victims who had no, no crime at all. The only thing you're penalizing for is the fact that they were conceived. That's and I right. had nothing to do with the conception. And yet you will penalize this innocent life. And the, and God said, I knew you in the womb, which meant that was a human, viable life.
3: The little black kid who was killed in uh, Kansas City the president named his operation legend after. He had survived. He was born with a bad heart. He survived open-heart surgery when he was four weeks old. And then got shot and killed in bed by a thug. Another form of killing off little black kids. It's a shame. So the president's on the right track I and mean, I think there are a lot of blacks around this country who are gonna say thank you, Mr. Trump. Maybe not publicly, but they will. And just throw the next yes. New York Times in the garbage can. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, there is a record number of black Americans supporting our president, and we're going to see it at the voting booth. And that's when I say that is where we're going to see the revolution, at the voting booth. As a matter of fact, CNN had an article back on July 21st by John Ransom, and the title was CNN's title. CNN, the Communist or the Clinton News Network, however you want to look at it. I think they're both the same. Uh Glenn, I mean-
0: <laughs>
1: Trump doing better with black voters than in 2016. So,
3: yeah, What do you think it's going to be? 26%. The,
1: per-
3: the percentage. What percentage do you think we can get for the president? If um, um, it's 15, anywhere it's all
1: over. I would say probably closer to 35, because in 2016,
3: he really? had 26%. Holy Toledo. Well, the election's over then. I mean, if if the president is going to get that kind of numbers, wow. The more it looks like that, the more you're going to see the Democrats and Biden go crazy and put all their black puppets out in front. I mean, mean, they're going to do that. But, wow, 26 to 30 percent. You ought to do an article on that. (laughs) Oh, that's great.
0: (laughs)
1: That's my personal opinion, but if he carried 26% in 2016, and if you look at the anarchy that is reigning in our urban centers, centers that are heavily minorities, and who's doing the rioting, you've got a few token blacks out there, but the vast majority of them are entitled whites. Exactly. And they're the ones that are... It makes no sense. Here you are, you grew up in a privileged lifestyle, so you go into a minority neighborhood, and you're basically stealing a section of our country, and no one is addressing that issue. These rich white kids who are, quote, unquote, um, bowing down to white guilt are being anarchists and doing some free shopping in a poor neighborhood. So who cares if this guy just worked his entire life to open up that Nike store or that television store? Uh, It's free merchandise now, guys.
3: I read a story where this little white couple was driving around in a Mercedes trying to get black kids. They had bricks in the trunk of their car trying to give these bricks to these little black kids. Well, maybe they can get some black folks who say, get out of here the next time they see these people. And they'll turn on them and say, quit trying to use us. It's sickening.
0: I saw the. I saw I, they,
4: this, what, this I saw the Twitter feed yesterday with some black moms and they had like five and maybe four-year-old kids walking with signs that said "After Police." Oh my like Oh holes yes. in it. Oh I'm my like, God!
0: I'm like,
4: wow! You know, w- w- these people should be locked up. You know, for child abuse. I, that's right. These kids don't know the first thing about what they're carrying around, you know?
3: Oh, my God.
4: Where where are the Al Sharptons and the Jesse Jacksons? They're supposed to be so morally, you know, righteous.
3: They have been quiet, and Jesse Jackson lives in Chicago. Charles Sharpton in New York City. He can certainly paint Black Lives Matter on that street. I wish somebody would take some black paint and paint over it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, God. one woman did try well,
4: and they arrested her. One black uh, woman did try to paint over it and they arrested her.
3: Well, well we got to get this country back to where a, it was before the pandemic. The president said. Yeah. Like, well, believe
1: it or not, ate, Clarence, this happened in California, in Redwood City, California, and they had uh. painted this Black Lives Mural all over the street. And then a woman came over and asked for equal space for a MAGA mural to be placed on the street. Okay. And guess what the city did? goes, ooh, I think we better wash that off because we don't want MAGA on the street. So we've got to be politically correct, and neither one can go on the street.
3: I can't wait for a court to <laughs> okay. say you can. If you're going to have Black Lives Matter in Washington, D.C., judicial watch has got this in court. If you have Black Lives Matter... In this on 16th Street, we can put "All Lives Matter" on 18th Street, and so that made them hesitate. So, let's see what the court says. Well, you
1: consider, you consider it's city property, so the city mm-hmm. is allowing a political message to be displayed. So, exactly. if you give one side of the message, it means you're endorsing it by not giving the other side. So, exactly. I can see the court turning around and said it's got to come off or you've got to allow both one of or course, the other. You can't have it that way.
3: Where some of these um, Obama judges are in district, you don't know what they're going to do in the DC, right? Gosh. <laughs> well, I you know, you.
1: no one, has, no one's mentioned uh, up in New York, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, oh, uh, have this, this COVID poster. Showing how wonderful he is, it's a re-election poster for him, touting how wonderful he is because he's yeah. up for re-election. He's selling yeah. that poster off of the governor's office website. Now, if I remember co- uh, correctly, election laws, campaign finance laws, you cannot use an official government property to campaign. Exactly. You can't do that. So that website is an, a government piece of property, and he is campaigning off of a government website, which is government property. He's breaking Gosh. campaign finance laws. If I remember correctly, tell me if I'm wrong.
3: No, no, no I, I think you're right because it's has of a little map or something. One in shape name yeah.
1: Yeah. Remember the, the mountain you're climbing? The mountain.
3: Hmm. He's the uh, <laughs> we call him the. Uh, Mr. Bail reform, Mr. TV star, six thousand or was it three thousand senior citizens died of the virus when he sent them back to the nursing homes, right? Media doesn't want to talk about that.
1: I think the number is a lot higher than that. I think it's more than sure, double sure that, is. honestly.
5: Sure I have
1: a, a friend wow. of mine that lost his mother-in-law, and then two weeks oh. later lost his father. Oh
0: uh, this God. is a That's kid a
1: that would actually when I walked to school would actually carry my books with before me. And if he's listening, Michael, special, you know, shout out to you. My thoughts and prayers are always with you every day with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, I always remember him very, very kindly. And of course he's a former Marine. Um, but you know, it, 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 the hypocrisy that we're seeing is absolutely stunning. Now you wrote an article about uh, defunding the police and why it's not a good thing. But you also Mm -hmm. suggested for reform. And I'm going to be going over this with your buddy uh, Gator later on, Curtis. Um, But I read the president's um, executive order for police reform. And Mm -hmm. I I really do take issue with it because what they're trying to do is federalize the police force. By doing Mm. this call for police reform, One size does not fit all. And not every Mm -hmm. law enforcement agency is done the same. You may have a small little podunk town. You can't run the police force the same way you do New York City or Orlando, Florida or Los Angeles. So a lot of these things they're talking about, the agencies are so small that you don't need the reform because the the people in that town or that village – already are doing, you know, uh, policing the police.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you
1: also have cities like New York that after um, the NAP Commission back in the 70s did massive Oh,
0: God, that, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you Knapp know,
1: Knapp there Commission. are agencies that, that are already policing themselves well. And then you have Minneapolis, Minnesota that screwed up. So you can't... Put what one agency did, and say nationwide, we now have to have this federal overreach into our local business.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You understand what I'm saying?
3: Yes. One thing it did, though, it set the it got the ball rolling because look, the Senate under Tim Scott's trying to do something, and that's another thing that really got me upset. The president lays the foundation for police reform in a general concept. Senator Scott has a bill he wanted to do. And what do the Democrats do? And they're they're puppets in the NAACP and the caucus. We're not going to support it. I don't believe that. And who helped him kill it, uh, helping the Senate bill? Two black Democrats, Kamala Harris and your friend from New Jersey, Cory Booker. and it's the same old thing C.S. and I have chatted about. Yeah. The Black Caucus and Black Democrats follow whatever the Democratic Party leadership and the unions tell them to do. School Left choice, dogs. instant. When the caucus started many years ago, and you know C.S. with uh, Bill Clay and Charlie Rangel, it actually was a leading took a leading position and kind of told the Democratic Party, here's the way we should go. Today... It's like a puppy dog. The Democratic oh, right. Party and the teachers union and the labor union say, "Hey, caucus, uh, jump, how high, guys?" That's the answer. It's a shame. So, you got forty-four members of the caucus now. What do they do? What have they proposed? They weren't for getting rid of any statues until the Democrats said we have to do it.
4: I'm Which telling you, when me, the Annie, statue of when the statue oh. of Frederick Douglass was torn down. Oh, that's my hometown, Rochester, Rochester,
3: New York. That's my hometown, Rochester, where he founded the North Star newspaper there. And there were a bunch of white kids, too. It's disgustful. Disgraceful. And you didn't hear anybody black talking about it. It's re- you know what it is? really cultural terrorism. It's Remember when the Islamic State in, in Iraq was tearing down statues and burning things
4: that were centuries yeah.
3: old? And everybody was condemning it? Well, that's what these radicals are doing here. shame. Well, Claire's Clarence,
1: people can find you now. You're up on Newsmax. Congratulations on that. You've got excellent articles over there. Um, so I want to thank you for joining us. It's always a lot of fun. And oh, just one last comment before I let you go up. Uh, what's up with Kamala Harris' new
0: cheekbones? <laughs> 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 okay, what's up ahead. with
1: Kamala Harris's new cheekbones? Did you see the facelift she
3: got? Oh, my goodness. You
0: think I'm oh, going to get into that character. stuff talking about a woman's face lift? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to take a look at it. It's, oh, I could have fun with that one.
0: Oh, Standing yeah. Sandy her high right. bones.
3: <laughs> is it, is, oh, I'm man. not going to get into that. <laughs>
0: it's
3: amazing. <laughs> <laughs> when well, the book is out, I'll, I'll get back to you. and We can come in and talk about it because you'll like it. Oh, yeah.
1: All right. All
3: okay, right, Clarence. Thank you very
1: thank much, you so both. Much. Thank, thank you so much. Enjoy your weekend. God bless.
3: Same
4: All to you. Right. All right, Thanks for the opportunity. All right.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Clarence McKee, check Bye. out his articles up on Newsmax. Uh, he is also the president of McKee Communications. Clarence McKee, check him out. want to bring on a new victim. <laughs> I'm going to have fun with this one. A new victim to the show. He's got a great book uh, that is coming out just now. And if I get my fingers on it, it's called Flamethrower. If I get the whole title out, you know, I love it when people have a book that's not just one word. It's about a whole paragraph called Flame Flow, if I have my teeth in straight, Flame Thrower Iwo Jima Medal of Honor recipient and U.S. Marine Woody Williams and his controversial award, Japan's Holocaust and the Pacific War. Try to say that ten times fast want to welcome on to the show, retired USMC, Brian Mark Riggs, Ph.D. Good afternoon, Brian. How are you today? I'm good, Ann. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Matter of fact, i got to tell yeah. you that, uh, in, in a way, I was a member of the Marine Corps in two ways. I was married to a gunny, and at the same time, I was pending bar in the NSBO club. And both oh of them my under God. Raymond You're Kelly.
6: You're a glutton for punishment. Then I,
1: then I went on to become a New York City police officer, and I again served under Raymond Kelly as police commissioner. So I knew him very well.
6: Oh, wow. And what a colorful and career. Andy. Well, I mean, yeah, being married to a gunny, you were, you know, <laughs> uh, God bless you. You must have the patience of Job.
1: <laughs> well, as you can tell, uh, I'm no longer uh, married to him. <laughs> <teleportation>
4: <laughs> However, in there, and... lived,
1: I live in the heart of the Tri-Command.
4: I've got the Buford
1: neighbor, Naval Hospital in one direction. I'm dead center in the triangle. I've got Paris Island in the other direction. Matter of fact, my doctor's office is right across the street from it. And I've got the Marine Corps Air Station in the other direction. So at, once in a while, you'll
6: hear an F-35 fly over my house. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks for your service as a police officer. As we know nowadays, that that, that is a, a tough tough profession to be in. You don't do it for the uh, Jaguars and the private jets, and you uh, have made our society in general much safer and uh, stronger. And I'm sorry for what your colleagues are going through right now. Oh, my, my heart breaks for them because the current president
1: of the PBA is a friend of mine uh, he and I served in the same command uh, coming out of Brooklyn. He's doing a fantastic job in fighting the de Blasio debacle. I don't know the way to say it. But uh, guys, NYPD, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you in prayer and spirit, even though I cannot be with you Yeah, physically. I
6: do. Yeah, My, um, my uh, yeah. ex-wife, who I was married to for 20 years, is from New York City. So I spent an awful lot of time there, and I came to really appreciate uh the uh New York City police department, especially after nine eleven. And uh one stat I read about is that at one time I guess when they had fifty or sixty thousand uh you know, policemen, uh they were like, you know, in the top twenty as far as like armies in the uh, Western world, they they were like in the top twenty largest uh military force. <laughs> so It's amazing what they do with New York City and, uh, you know, and how they have kept that city uh, safe. So, yeah, I'm with you and being with them. Yeah, because I I went in there and they were still recovering
1: from the Democrats. I went in there under uh, Out of Town Brown was a police commissioner, and he showed up at the uh, graduation of us from the police academy, (laughs) Garden City, uh, not Garden City, Garden City. Grandson, what the heck was it that the, the, the Madison Square Garden? Boy, am I having brain farts! Uh, Madison Square Garden, our graduation, drunk, and the mayor at the time was David, and I will call him by the name I usually call him, David Dickless Dinkins, <laughs> <laughs> be replaced by uh, who we campaigned actively for, Rudy Giuliani. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I would run across people like Al Sharp, and I have a funny story I tell because we were doing a Muslim anti drug march. And there's an area in Brooklyn that has a Muslim community there. And they were marching from their mosque down through Brooklyn. So, Al Sharp had decided to tag onto this march and try to hijack it. So, they had built these bleachers on the street so they can have the rally. So Al Sharpton with his entourage, and this is when it wasn't skinny Al Sharpton, this is when he was still wearing the jogging suits and the chains. He gets up to the top here, and they didn't anchor the bleachers properly. And you see this guy in this big purple jogging suit, his arms are flailing in the air like he's trying to fly. As the whole thing topples over, he goes, hits the ground, and it's, True story, he bounced. He actually bounced. He wasn't hurt, but do you know how hard it was to not laugh when you see this? So uh, whenever I think of Al Sharpton, I see his arms waving in the sky, trying to
6: fly, not fall, and then bounce. (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway. I I, I wish I could have seen that as well. I I don't have much respect for him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I sat next to him uh, while he was about to go on uh, air back in it was 2002 or 2003 and defending Michael Jackson with all the uh, the mess that Michael Jackson had got himself into, and just listening to how he was talking about people and you know you know it's almost like you know if you get Reverend put in front of your name, there's nothing you can get away with a lot of times in in our society. But I think he's been shown to be the charlatan that he is, and I wish I could have seen him having his hard time in the bleachers like you just described. Yeah, well, I retired
1: a long time ago, so I wasn't there for 9-11, but I was there for the first bombing um, back in 93, February 93. I was on duty that day. Uh, It is a day I won't forget because my sister-in-law at that time had her offices in the Twin Towers. So, yeah, um, like I said, a day I will never forget. Anyway, we're going to talk about your book, which is called The Flamethrower. Uh, It's about Woody Williams, but you you build it up where you explain what was going on going into World War II and the situation that was in the United States and the world uh, and how the Japanese were uh, uh, empire building. And I've, I've read several different books and I've interviewed several different authors concerning with World War II, but you got really down into the nitty gritty of what the Japanese mindset was at that time now it hasn't completely disappeared, but it's become more as I should say civilized or westernized in in mind thing and it, it's it's hard for a Westerners like us to understand this type of a mindset. And we see it not only in the Japanese mindset going into World War II, but we see it today in the world of radical Islam, and we don't understand. Yeah,
6: Yeah, I I have actually described, you know, part of my book, uh, you know, with the subtitle, I think people get a little bit of a feel. You know, I talk about small unit tactics and getting – Uh, familiar with um, Marines and their individual experiences and how they get awards. And and I use Woody Williams' life, the Medal of Honor recipient, one of the biggest living uh, legends today. And I use his life. And then I talk about the Pacific War and really talk about how we need to be so thankful what America did of, uh, you know, bringing down Hirohito and Tojo's regime. And then I get into the Japanese Holocaust and then getting into the themes that you're talking about And really, you know, the terrifying thing about Japan during World War II is that it was like a nation of ISIS, radical fascist Islamic uh, fighters, but they had a modern industrial complex to support them and an organized supply chain in one of the largest navies in the world. So, you know, whereas now the Islamic fascists that were fighting, the Taliban in Afghanistan, al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, ISIS in northern Syria, uh, is that you know, they don't know how to make weapons. They buy the stuff. They use drugs, especially in Afghanistan, you know, the opium trade and so on, but they don't have infrastructure. And so when you look at what Japan was doing at this time with the infrastructure and that they were radical religious nut jobs. and this is one thing I don't think people realize, that as a modern nation at this time period, in the 1930s and 1940s, they were the only modern nation in the world that was still led by a god in human form. Hirohito was not only the emperor and the leading dictator, but he was a god in human form and one of the highest Shinto gods to um, to be worshipped. And so, when these guys went into battle, you know, they had the same kind of Islamic uh, delusion that they were going to be rewarded. And but instead of having 72 virgins. And, you know, Allah uh, praising them for their glory of killing people and so on uh, in the Islamic uh, theology. In the Shinto theology, you actually became Shinto spirits or you actually became gods yourself um, to regale other warriors and gods of your deeds during life and that you would have eternal life. And so these guys were incredibly passionate about what they were doing. And unlike with Nazi Germany with fascism there that had really reared its ugly head in January of 1933 when Hitler became chancellor of um, uh, the German uh, Reich, you had basically fascist ideology, fascist government structure, fascist education, and radical Shinto Zen Buddhist uh, theology from 1868, the Meiji Restoration, until, you know, they surrendered in um, uh, August of 1945. So you had basically three to four generations, unlike with Nazi Germany, where you only had half a generation, that had been brainwashed and radicalized and militarized. And so when you look at Nazi Germany, a lot of people we know with Schindler's List and, you know, Saving Private Ryan, and, you know, we, we have a lot of popular cultural Uh, Movies and books and documentaries, the Holocaust, is on the Shoah, uh, the Gray Zone, and on to really kind of tell us about the European theater. But we don't have an awful lot about the Japanese theater. And whereas Nazi Germany slaughtered 6 million Jews, and it was horrific, the Japanese slaughtered 22 million people, 17 of which were Chinese. So when you start realizing what type of enemy we were up against, who we were fighting on Guam and Saipan and Tinian, where the bomb flew from, and then Iwo Jima and Okinawa, you just realize what our American boys were really up against. And it was the most radical enemy America has ever faced in mass, And we defeated him, but it took us three and a half years, and... You know, whereas a lot of armies talk about fighting to the, you know, to the fighting to the end, in World War II, when a Waffen SS unit or a Wehrmacht unit or a Soviet unit or American or British unit, when they encountered thirty percent fatality rate, they surrendered. they hoisted the the white flag. And usually, when you have thirty percent fatality rate, that means you have another thirty percent that are wounded, and you only have probably thirty percent left that are combat effective. The Japanese had a fatality rate of 98%. They never gave up. They never surrendered. And not only did the Japanese soldier behave this way, but when we enter, uh, encountered Japanese civilians on Tenanen, on Saipan, and on Okinawa, we found that these citizens refused to give up, and they were blowing themselves up and killing themselves, and this played large with the American leadership going, oh, my God, the, the um, casualties we suffered on Iwo Jima and Okinawa, we don't want to have that, uh, you know, with large American armies going into Japan. And we don't want to see Japan citizens slaughtering themselves left and right. We've got to drop the bombs. And their guesstimation was one million American lives would have died occupying Japan in combat. And probably around five to ten million uh, Japanese civilians would have died. In fact, before the inv- eight months before the invasion would have taken place, uh, or before the surrender, I should say, basically the, the whole of the year of 45, all Japanese elementary schools were uh, basically transformed into suicide bomber schools. They were training first graders to sixth graders to use their school packs full of uh, explosives to run under jeeps and tanks and into American servicemen. So if you can just imagine, you know, you have a regiment of Marines going over a hill, and all of a sudden they're being attacked by five or 6,000, you know, second graders running at them in their colored clothes and their backpacks, all suicide bombers. And they were more than willing to do so. So I go into this aspect of the Japanese, and then I go into also just how brutal they were with the areas that they occupied. They would go into Nanking
0: hey, Brian, and... Frank, you... huh?
6: All right, Brian, yeah, just for a
0: second um,
1: if you can adjust your microphone a little bit because we're getting a lot of you know heavy breathing, <laughs> I think you're exciting some oh. of our female listeners <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> oh i'm I'm sorry. About-
6: is this better?
0: Yes, ladies. He's a hunk. He's not. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I'm.
6: I'm, I'm yeah. terribly sorry. I thought my mi- microphone was uh, was good, but uh, I definitely don't want to come off as if I'm, I'm heavy breathing. <laughs> no,
0: no, is, is this better, Ann? Yeah,
6: we, you're,
1: like, it's absolutely wonderful. Now my my female listeners can sit down and relax.
6: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, thank <laughs> you. I'm, I'm glad I haven't lost my sexual
1: appeal
0: yeah. when Take I need to be doing it by mistake. <laughs>
6: so, you know, getting to what, what a lot of people don't know, and speaking of women, the, the largest violator of women's rights, if you will, and just
3: womenhood
6: in general were the, not, uh, were the uh, Japanese, whereas there was 20,000 German soldiers who were actually executed during World War II for raping. The German military uh, did not encourage this, did not sanction it at all, and they kept order a lot of times in, in this respect in a lot of places. Now, I mean, you know, that's it's, it's kind of in contrast, it's kind of a weird law to, to enforce when they were also taking Jews and killing them and so on. But they did not tolerate rape in general, whereas Japan, it was a badge of honor to rape. So they were encouraged to do it, and they would just go into whole regions and cities and just rape everywhere. The rape of Nanking, by way of illustration, within about three and a half, four months, they killed 300,000 people by Cutting off their heads and bayoneting them for you know practice, uh, blowing their uh, you know brains out and so on, and then they had at least twenty thousand documented rapes between the ages of infant all the way up to ninety years old, and it's a sick mindset that I that I discovered with the Japanese with their genocidal mindset, their radical uh, religious mindset their imperialistic mindset. So when you put this in the context of World War II, which a lot of Americans don't know about, we need to be so thankful to those Marines and soldiers and sailors that went over in the Pacific and brought down one of the evilest regimes known to mankind and stopped the rape of Asia. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And sorry for pontificating so long, but I think it's very important for American (laughs) listeners to realize just how evil this regime was, and how what a redoubtable enemy it was for us, and that we did the world a great service of bringing Hirohito to his knees.
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't understand about Imperial Japan under Hirohito and his predecessors, and it's never been brought to the forefront. Only recently, uh, because of certain things going on with China, we're learning about the rape of Nanking. And even then, you're not getting the whole story. Now, you were pretty fantastic on how you described that, uh, but they don't understand that no matter where the Japanese went, it was genocide. It was looting. It was rape. It was murder. It was executions. Um, If you Did anything that may upset one of the Japanese soldiers, you're likely to lose your head in that instance. Uh, The fear and the terror that these people lived under, and you described how the Americans finally, when they did liberate Guam, how the people had been decimated there and were so glad to be free once again. Where the Japanese would say that you know the uh, the ape Americans are going to come in and do worse to you than we're doing. Every time we liberated someone, they found out that it's not not the case. They would rather be rid of the Japanese and under our care, not dominion. I would say, oh yeah, absolutely. Care.
6: And even the Japanese and even the Japanese uh, citizens that we did uh, protect and rescue on Saipan when they started seeing how kind we were and we set up camps where we gave medical attention and food and so on they were just in tears uh and they realized their government had been lying to them and you bring up an interesting story with guam which a lot of people don't realize is guam was an american territory uh chamoras a lot of people call them guamanians but that's not correct they're called Chamorras. they were american citizens in fact 12 of them Uh, And many of them were very passionate and were serving in our military. And 12 of them died in the Pearl Harbor attack on the ships there. Uh, So they were very patriotic very loyal. And when uh, Japan took over uh, Guam, American territory again, they eventually set up seven concentration camps on the island. They raped almost all the adult women and, you know, teenage girls. And they slaughtered 10% of the population. And had we dallied any longer, Then, you know, when we liberated it in July of 1944, there is a strong argument to be made that at least half, if not more so, of the population, especially the very young and the old, would have all died. So we had American Holocaust on American soil, and we liberated them. And percentage-wise of any state or territory in the Union, they have the highest percentage today of young men and women serving in our military. They have never forgotten what we have done, what we did for them, liberating them uh, from the Japanese.
1: It's it's a very interesting book, and you do go into depth, into real depth, into what the political, the military, and the logistic situations were. Um, there's, but one thing I didn't see too much of is that the, you did mention it in the book, the relationship between the Nazis and the Japanese. And um, I've read some other books that went a little bit more into it, but each one thought they were far superior to the other. So yet they found an excuse to be able to work together between the Italians, the Germans, and and the Japanese. But each one thought they were superior to the other, but yet they had to make an excuse. So Germany said, well, you're our Asian Assyrians, uh,
6: Aryans, not Assyrians, Aryans. Get the right race
1: there, Annie. Uh-huh.
6: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you bring up a very interesting point, and I go into this in a few pages. You know, both of these radical nations, just like we see with ISIS, you know, they're saying, hey, we are the best God has created, the best religion that has been given to man. And if you're not part of our tribe, you're inferior, you're an infidel, you know, you're subhuman. And they have this ideology now. Uh, And Japan and Germany had the same thing. As you rightly note, uh, Germany was creating this bogus – pseudoscientific myth about Aryanhood, you know, tall, blonde, blue-eyed. And the Japanese had this Yamato philosophy that the Japanese, just in general, were the most superior uh, of all humans. And what's interesting, when Germans would describe Jews and Slavs and so on, they used the term untermensch, which is subhuman, but yet they were still partially human, whereas the Japanese used a term, and they still use it today, called gaijin, which means non-human. So when they were being indoctrinated in their different ideologies, the leadership started realizing this could cause a lot of problems in political, diplomatic, business relations, because Germany and Japan were some of the biggest trading partners with each other. And so Hitler came up with a compromise saying, well, they are the Asian Prussians. They are the Asian Aryans. And they gave them a hall pass from not being, uh, you know, termed non-Aryan and inferior. And Japan basically just said, well, we are both superior species, and in this great world conflict, we'll see who does the best kind of thing with the intent of, oh, obviously, we're going to show you, you know, where we are the best. So, yeah, it was like mixing oil and water and both their ideologies. You can't have two chosen people, and they were having – a crisis of faith, if you will, uh, because uh, their ideologies um, basically countered the uh, the alliance that they had with one another. Uh, it just shows the hypocrisy of these bogus racial concepts that people put out there about one type of rest or, uh, a race or ethnicity being superior. You know, the one thing that Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan teaches all of us is that we're part of one race the human race. And the sooner we get to that realization, the stronger our society will be.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, one thing that the Japanese and the Chinese are also very, very good at because if you are not fluent and if that's not your native language to understand the nuances of the language, they can say one thing and the interpreter will tell you something different. And we see this throughout all the negotiations prior to Pearl Harbor with the Japanese, and even afterwards, where you think that you're being complimented, and yet you're being directly insulted to your face, but the interpreter is saying something sweet
6: and nice to you. Yeah, you know, I had that also. I mean, I've had a lot of struggles um, getting this book out, because Japan, unlike Germany... Uh, has a culture of denial. Their state-sponsored textbooks don't talk about any of these problems. Most people don't even know Japan started the war with us by sinking our battleships at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Nobody knows about Rape of Nanking, and there's no memorials, unlike Germany, that has thousands of them uh, to the victims. There's no memorials to the victims uh, in Japan, and they, they falsify documents. They burn documents. They're a, a nation of, uh, they're a disgraceful nation when it comes to um, owning up to their, their crimes. Now getting to the nuances in language, Japan is all about keeping faith and all about not offending anybody. Uh, or if you are going to go down that road, that you have the higher ground and you definitely will not be offended. But when you do offend, the people around you will view you as tough as offending somebody else. But the person is being offended usually a foreigner, will have no clue what's going on. So translators who are Japanese translators quite often, especially back in World War II, were at pains to be very careful about what they were saying and not trying to offend anybody. Well, if you're not transparent about your goals and your imperialistic dreams and things of that sort, there's no way to really be nuanced about it. So when you look at the diplomatic traffic and the conversations going on with Japan and America from basically 37, uh, when we started having a lot of problems with Japan over in Asia and how they were behaving with China uh, leading up to Pearl Harbor, it is really you see the, the, the clash of two cultures that were really polar opposites. And, it's, it's, and so getting to my most uh, recent event with experiencing this myself, The garrison commander of Iwo Jima was General Kuribayashi, the most redoubtable general we met of the Japanese Empire. And he commanded Iwo Jima, made famous by Clint Eastwood's films from 2006, Letters from Iwo Jima, and Flags of Our Fathers. And I got the opportunity to talk to his grandson, who is a high-ranking LDP, Liberal Democratic Party member. He's in Shinzo Abe's cabinet. He's being groomed to be the next prime minister of Japan. And when I sat down with him, I was part of the Iwo Jima American Association, and his organization that he has on the side for the Iwo Jima, In this organization I was part of, we bring veterans from Japan and America together every year on Iwo Jima, and we have a reunion of honor. We honor both of the warriors uh, on both sides, and we try to create more peace and good alliances with each other. And this is good. Uh, So I went to him and I said, hey, I found out that your grandfather, Kuribayashi, is a mass murdering rapist. Now, of course, I didn't use those terms. I said, you know, he did a lot of troubling things in Hong Kong. How do we present this to make sure nobody's embarrassed, but yet we keep the historical integrity? Well, through the translator, he was very nice, very gracious to me. If you find the truth, write truth, and uh, I will support you in this. Well, he, what he really was thinking is, like, you should not write this at all, because as soon as that meeting got done, he called up the Iwo Jima American Association and said, if you don't shut up, Brian, I'm going to cut off access to the island, which violates our 1968 treaty. He tried to blackball me with some other groups. He had the embassy calling me up and threatening me. So right there with the translator, he could have told me what his true thoughts were. But in verbal conversation, he wasn't about to reveal his hand. But then suddenly when I get back here, I get blackballed. Versus usually when you're <laughs> dealing with American academics or British academics and you're talking about these issues, you usually get things out on the table and you try to find a strategy together, especially if there's some you know, information that's uncomfortable. So that's one example to kind of support what you're talking about that you can never really get a straight answer a lot of times out of the Japanese back then and even today.
1: Yeah, they do not want to admit to the history, the history prior to World War II and during World War II. a uh, matter of fact, uh, there was a group of women in, in Korea that wanted them to admit to going to Korea, getting comfort women and shipping them to wherever they were needed in other words they kidnapped these women from their homes from their families from their villages and put them into sex slavery and then would oh yeah ship them around so not only did they have the sex slaves in the wherever they conquered they freely took from these women and it wouldn't be just once maybe or twice it would be multiple times a day, and they would be passed around.
6: Well, I actually I write about this—the comfort women and the forced prostitution—in uh, in the book, and I'm horrified. You know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, what type of women raised these guys to do what they did? And and like you're, you're right to say, they would ship them around on cattle cars, and it was the and they treated these women like cattle. And it was the biggest operation in human trafficking in the modern world and in modern memory. And to service men, like you were talking about, being raped, they had quotas. Twenty enlisted men up to noon. Then from noon to dinner, they had to do two to four non commissioned officers and then for dinner in the evening they had to entertain one or two officers, often a flag officer. So some of these women were literally raped forty you know, thirty to forty times a day. And these these guys were a lot of times the the girls, the average age of a comfort woman has been documented at fifteen. So not only was the Japanese military in general A military of rapists but they were pedophiles and they took a lot of their women from Korea but when they would go into different areas after they would conquer they would just snatch up women left and right the Japanese had a funny I put in quotation mark funny little phrase that they go around and they say hey what are you doing today well this is my day to go girl hunting you know can you imagine our military you know having such terminology uh, and how we would you know treat women like this, I mean, when you look at what we did with Japan and Germany, we had strict laws about this. We also executed people who committed rape, and we realized that womanhood of a society, the people makers, if you will, should be protected and respected. Japan had none of that, and they were absolutely grotesque and the millions upon millions of rapes they did from nineteen twenty seven Until 1945. That's how long they were in China. So you are right to bring this up, and it's something that needs to be talked about. I mean, Japan ignores it all the time. There was a sister city relationship between San Francisco and Osaka, and just a few years ago, a memorial was put up to the comfort women in San Francisco. Well, the sister city in Japan was so offended by this, saying it was Japan bashing, that they cut off all ties and the mayor was so arrogant and ignorant and such an ignoramus that he said at first um, there was no such thing as comfort women just like Shinzo Abe has said the the despicable uh, leader that they have right now and then when he was pushed on this he said not Shinzo Abe but the mayor he said oh okay well maybe they existed but they were paid for their services and they were necessary to keep morale high with the Japanese troops. I mean, what modern nation, decent leaders, say such things? But here again, this is Japan and not wanting to dishonor their ancestors, and this is another thing that's really kind of hard to understand about them. You have all these horrible people you've documented, rape of Nanking, massacre of Manila, rape of Hong Kong, Unit 731, their medical experiments, the comfort women. And when you talk about their leaders doing this, the Japanese in general have this culture that you should never talk ill of the dead and never talk ill of leaders in the past. It's like having Germany come forward and say, hey, we should not talk about Hitler, not talk about Eichmann, not talk about uh, Heydrich, because that would be dishonorable. Well, the dishonor is not talking about history, documenting it, seeing these guys who were horrible actors in life to learn from them so we don't repeat it. And it's kind of like what... I always... I'm haunted as I studied Japan's lack of remorse, lack of apologies, lack of documenting this, that they are much more capable of doing this again than Germany ever is. Because I think of Primo Levi, an Auschwitz survivor, who said those who deny... Auschwitz will be the ones who do it again. And here with Japan, you have that mindset. And I actually go back to another conversation I had to kind of support this. I was with three Japanese bankers back in 1995 in Freiburg, Germany, learning German together. And the three, a good thing about them is that they got curious about what the West was saying about the war. So they started studying about what their country did, and they got some books about the rape of the King and a few other things that were pretty horrific. And as we were talking, you know, I asked them, well, you know, do you feel remorse for this? And they said no. And, uh, and then they basically all volunteered, you know, our country is our country, and if they asked us to do this again, we would. And I just was horrified. I mean, it's like having a whole bunch of Germans saying, you know what, if our country asks us to set up Auschwitz and kill Jews again, we'll do it. I mean, who who says that type of stuff? But that's their type of culture, their mindset, their collective um, Borgness, if you will, to use a Star Trek uh, analogy. That they they're part of this Borg, this collective consciousness, and whatever the leadership does, you can take the whole herd with you, which is kind of horrifying. When I studied this um, this this chapter of World War II history and then how it is being remembered in Japan. Or not you know, it, 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 Well, it, it's a
1: political mindset. It's a religious mindset. It is a societal mindset. And we as Westerners just simply don't understand it. It's a male-dominated and commanding uh, uh, society, but it even has its own divisions with it. So, you know, you can be born in Japan, a natural born Japanese, but if you're not of this one group, you are not a full japanese in their eyes you are a minor you're i'm trying to think of the word you're you're
6: As a to them yeah yeah absolutely you're so you're, you're a barbarian yeah even among their own
1: people they committed these atrocities among their own people and saipan was a perfect example of it here you have members yep. of japan but being brutalized by
6: the military and leadership of Tokyo. Yeah, I mean you, you, you do you do have this crazy uh, situation in Saipan, which I document very thoroughly. and that is if um, uh, if you as a father, mother, you know older brother uh, sister, did not follow their orders to kill your family members and yourself, the military had instructed snipers and other military guys to kill you. Also, the, the soldiers are handing out cyanide, handing out grenades to the, uh, the citizens and saying, hey, if we don't get a relief force, you are expected to kill yourself. It was a nation of suicide-minded uh, people that they were creating a, a cultural extermination of Japan. And uh, there were even leaders calling for, when the invasion of Japan happened in November, leaders were saying, hey, okay, we got 70 million people. If half of them die in combat, that might be a cost that's just too much for the West, and we'll, we'll get victory. I mean, they're willing to sacrifice half the people. You don't have that in America, and I think our value of life is uh, uh, much more precious to us, and we have a sh- stronger value of protecting the weak, which I think the, mil- the, the, the experience of our military um, you know, clashes with Nazism and with imperial Japanese, imperial Japanese imperialism really shows how, although for all the warts we have with American democracy— It is truly a remarkable place that values human rights, women's rights, and pursuing a more just government through gradations. I mean, you know, when we founded the country with the problems we're having now, we had slavery, but now we had basically loopholes built into the Constitution that allowed for development, and we have been developing a more moral society. It's been slow, but it's it's remarkable. It reminds me of what Churchill said, you know, that, American democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the rest. Well,
1: I've got—I actually, I'm going to hold up in front of the camera—51 pages of notes from your book. <laughs> this is, you know, highlighting and then printing out the notes because there's so much more in there. <laughs> Excuse me. And it's interesting that prior to World War II, there were some in the Marine Corps that understood. That we needed to understand how to do amphibious landings, which brought about the Higgins boat and several yeah. other innovations, not only in equipment, but also in tactics. And they practiced this and practiced it and practiced it. And it got to one point where it was a fight between two commanders, one naval, one Marine Corps, on e- prior to the invasion of Iwo Jima, fighting for control of the landing vessels. And it came down to one, yep. the Marines said, if it's a Marine's uniform, the Marines are in charge. Amen. Yeah,
6: that's that General Erkson uh, with Blood and Guts irkson, which I think people need to know more about. And I appreciate you bringing this up. And I'm obviously a Marine Corps, I mean, I'm a Marine Corps officer, so I'm obviously a little biased with what I'm about to say. But there's a lot to be said for the hypothesis that the Marine Corps really helped win World War II the way it was won. And what I'm saying is uh, the following. Erkson, who you just mentioned, he was fighting with uh, Admiral Turner. Turner. Turner wanted to have control of the Amtrak's, where they were like kind of floating tanks, and they usually hit the beach first before the Higgins boats came, so they could provide an iron wall. And these uh, Amtrak's would have machine guns or cannons on them, and they provided a lot of firepower. Well, Turner wanted Navy guys to be driving those and control of those, and and Hurston said no. These are combat vehicles, and when they get on land. They're tactical vehicles to support Marines, and the uniform that's driving it right now is a Marine, and it's going to stay Marine. And he, he won that argument, even though they had, you know, uh, very passionate fights, as you note. So getting back to Irkson in, in the 30s, and also Victor Krulak, who um, if he hadn't had spats with LBJ during Vietnam, he probably would have been our, uh, you know, 20, 22nd, 23rd commandant. But he had he told basically LBJ that he was – an idiot, and was, uh, you know, prosecuting the war very unwisely, and so he didn't get the competency. But Krulak, with Erkson and Helen Matt Smith and many others, helped develop in the 20s and 30s the amphibious warfare doctrine that led every amphibious invasion that we saw in World War II, with Normandy, with uh, North Africa, with all the islands in the Pacific, And as Eisenhower said, this is an Army, you know, general saying, the Higgins boat won the war for us. If you can't hit a beach aggressively, quickly, efficiently, and land your troops, you are not going to be able to do what we did in World War II. And the doctrine and the machines that were developed in order to do this were developed by the Marine Corps, in the 30s and early 40s, and we're the ones that really brought the ramp boat, the Higgins boat, the, you know, it was made famous in Saving Private Ryan, and the Amtrak's, and developed the larger ships, the LST, Landing Ship Tanks that landed tanks and jeeps and trucks, and you know, it's amazing. Within a few hours, we could go to any beach, and land 30 to 40 thousand combat effective men and engage the enemy
7: with planes
6: tanks jeeps and it's just amazing the power projection we had i like to give the following example to show what we were able to do when japan attacked us at pearl harbor they attacked us with 36 ships and about 300 airplanes they didn't have any really uh, amphibious uh, capable uh ships and vehicles at this time to really take over hawaii uh so they attacked us, they sank our ships in two waves, and then left. Well, a couple years later, now we're attacking them at Iwo Jima. And instead of 36 ships, we have 800. And we bring 250,000 men there and about 3,000 airplanes. Not 300, but 3,000. And we eventually land 80,000 guys on that island and just obliterate them. Later on at Okinawa, we bring 1,500 ships. And we bring over 100,000 men, combat men, on on the island. And it's just amazing what we were able to do from a a naval perspective. When we started the war, we had 350 ships. When we ended it, we had 8,800. Don't mess with us. Uh, And the Marine Corps (laughs) did a very good job. Yeah, yeah, I'm beating my chest right now. The Marine Corps, here again, did a (laughs) phenomenal job of helping the Navy and the Army uh, and the Marine Corps, obviously, know how to hit a beach, take it over quickly. And this is a kind of sad factoid on the side. So Victor Krulak was one of the instrumental guys with Helen Matt Smith and General Erickson of developing the Higgins boats and the Amtraks. And he was in China in 1937 when Japan started attacking um, a whole bunch of cities in China using the river networks. And he saw them using ramp uh, boats. When he came back, he told Helen Matt Smith, he was in charge of amphibious operations for the Marine Corps, about this. And Helen Matt Smith said, hey, go talk to my buddy in Louisiana, Andrew Higgins. So Victor Krulak went there and helped develop the Higgins boat, especially with the ramp, that allowed you to really hit a beach quickly and send troops in there and combat material. Well, while Victor Krulak is doing all this, he's a, he's a son of Jewish immigrants, And while his ships and a lot of the technology and techniques that he developed were taking over Normandy and bringing Hitler down, his paternal grandparents were killed in the Holocaust.
3: So this Jewish kid
6: really helped change the world and, and was one of the nails in Hitler's coffin of bringing him down. And I love kind of exploring these little factoids and biographies and really flushing out these concepts in my book. So thank you for bringing that up, in. Well, I want to, because
1: we're down to our last ten minutes with you, uh, get over now to Woody Wilson. And one of the things, it's funny because you mentioned in your book uh, Dr. Mary Walker, and I don't know if you were aware that we start each show with a dedication to a fallen hero, and sometimes you have an individual that may not have fallen in combat but was so extraordinary that we would do the dedication to them. Mary Walker was one of those that I had done, so I was fully aware of her and her medal of honor. So, I was reading about the exploits of Woody, and one of the things I used to do before I retired out of NYPD's, I used to write up and do the commendations and put them before the board for approval. So I know the detail that has to go into this, the people that have to be interviewed, the records that have to be obtained before someone receives an award, whether it's an exceptional or meritorious or something as high as the Medal of Honor. So knowing that detail, I was surprised that that level of investigation was not
6: applied to Woody Williams. Yeah, Woody Williams, you know, here again, he's the biggest living legend in the Marine Corps today. He's 96 years old. You know, there were 700,000 Marines in World War II. 82 of them got the Medal of Honor, the highest medal you can get for valor, going beyond the call of duty uh, and showing your bravery in combat. Uh, Only 37 Marines survived their acts out of those 82. So to have a guy still alive today from World War II uh, and that was a Medal of Honor is just remarkable. Um, but as you go into his, his case study, uh, you realize he should have not gotten it all. Victor Krulak's son, Charles C. Krulak, became the 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps and was a phenomenal Marine. And I sat down with him with the documents and also 29th Commandant of the Marine Corps, Al Gray, and I showed him what I found about Woody Williams and Woody Williams should never have gotten this medal. Now, Woody Williams has become so famous because Trump has him at rallies, hospitals are being named after him, one of the largest ships in the navy, expeditionary sea Bay ship number 4 is named after him. Uh, he threw out the coin for Super Bowl 52. So this is really controversial what I found out. Make a long story short, what happened was Woody did some heroic things on Iwo Jima, no doubt. But when he got back to Guam, where the 3rd Marine Division was stationed, and he was serving in that division, obviously, he started as a typical, uneducated you know, kid, You know, beating his chest, and his 4-pound bass became 30 pounds. And before he knew it, his story took on a life of its own, and his command believed it and wrote that up and they did the scientific process basically in reverse they they thought they got all the facts they wrote it up they sent it up the chain of command and when it got up to regimental and divisional they said okay this is great get the affidavits so they started looking at the uh, you know getting affidavits and then they put the whole thing together and continued on sending it up the chain of command when it got to Chester Nimitz and his board fleet you know fleet admiral of the pacific Uh, And then when it got to the head of the Marine Corps, uh, Fleet Marine Force Pacific Command, uh, Roy S. Geiger, Lieutenant General, and his board, these boards and these two flag officers basically realized, man, this evidence doesn't support half of what's put in the sample citation and what was reported by his captain. And as they got into it more and more, they're like, we are not going to award this medal. And uh, while this is going back and forth and they're trying to find more evidence, Woody's uh, platoon leader, who supposedly witnessed everything, refused to give an affidavit uh, for Woody uh, for this. He, and that's just shocking. That, that shocked Commandant Trulac as, as it, it did me. So what happened was, as it's going back and forth and people trying to get evidence and trying to figure out what they should do with this, the war comes to an end. And President Truman... Wants to have a lot of alive Medal of Honor recipients at the Rose Garden on October the fifth, nineteen forty-five, to celebrate the end of the war and do something that's very apolitical. You know, we see presidents do this all the time with Medal of Honor recipients, and he was going to do it for nine guys. Well, there was a couple of them that the evidence was still outstanding. Woody was one of them, and under pressure from POTUS, the President of the United States. He forced the Secretary of Navy basically to act on this, pull it away from the chain of command, and go ahead and push it through. And Woody is the only Medal of Honor uh, recipient that I've documented from the uh, Iwo Jima that never got the Marine Corps endorsement, never got the Commandant to sign off uh, uh, from World War II. And what's interesting is Woody probably knows because he's figured out later on that his bogus story is what started this all. And so you could almost argue from a legal point of view that it was fraud by omission. He knew his bogus story, started this whole process, and the regulations weren't followed. The mandates weren't followed. Like you were saying, most of the time when these medals are reviewed, they're done extremely um, you know, with, with careful oversight, and you don't have these type of mistakes. But I think because the war came to such a quick end, there was a lot of euphoria. They wanted to get these guys out uh, from the service and get back to a peacetime you know, world, and they just kind of fast-tracked and cut corners. And so I wasn't expecting to find what I did, but Woody Williams should have never gotten the Medal of Honor uh, for his acts in World War II. Now, it, 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 it's a shame, though, because you
1: know, reading the account, it's obvious he did something very heroic on that day.
6: It was did.
5: very obvious. He did, absolutely. You're, you're, was, yeah, you're
6: right, you're right to know. But it was common what he did. I mean, what he did, uh, guys were doing left and right. He took out a few pillboxes and killed maybe eight Japanese. And, um, you know, the, the 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 sad thing is, is once Woody figured out that I had figured him out and that, you know, and even Commandant Krulak basically says, well, he deserves a silver star. And, you know, you have thousands of guys that got silver stars uh during you know world war ii you know you only have like i said 82 medal of honor but when woody figured out that i figured him out and he he embellishes so many stories this is not the only one i mean he he's a a teller of tall tales his whole life and when he figured out that i had figured out and got his number he filed a fifth district federal lawsuit against me to try to shut me up as if we live in the soviet union uh and luckily i 've had you know i 've had the resources to fight him and keep the book out there. You are right to know, Dan. He did a lot of heroic things, and it 's sad that it 's come to this because you know it wasn 't like a a pure stolen valor where he was never there and he made up all the stuff and he got a medal that he never deserved. He did fight heroically and so on and he's he is a hero, but what I found in my research is that he 's a very flawed hero,
1: yeah. And it's, it's a shame because now you had a fantastic story, and if he just stuck with the truth, it wouldn't be this bad. But he, he didn't want to stick with the truth, and that's the problem we have.
6: Yeah. You know, and it's, it's sad that, and a lot of guys, I've caught a lot of guys doing this in my research. It's kind of interesting. When I studied the, the German military for my first book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, almost every German veteran I documented, when I went to their personnel files, I didn't find any discrepancies. With a lot of the American guys, I found tons of discrepancies, one of them being Woody's one of Woody's favorite sidekicks. And I found out he wasn't even on the island, uh, and Woody had him promoting his deeds and heroics and lying for him in public. And what I think happened with a lot of American guys is they came over, we were the heroes, we won the war, and people want to hear the stories. And so they continually ask and ask, and over the years, the guys kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work, and then they start adding to it. And before you know it, you have a story that doesn't even come close to reality, but because they've been asked to tell it so much, and people revere them, and they love that attention, it takes on a life of its own. So it's kind of ironic, my experience when I interviewed Nazi soldiers, is that most of them were very honest about what they did versus when I talked to American soldiers and sailors, you know, I have to double check and triple check what they're telling me to make sure it's the truth. And luckily all the Navy um, and Marine Corps files from World War II did not go up in flames in the St. Louis uh, archive. And so I was able to get into all those personnel records from World War II of every guy, that I was documenting, and I had a Marine Corps correspondent attached to Woody's unit that I got all his articles from the, the war, and so I know all these guys that served in the unit because he wrote about them, and then I went back to the archives and dug up their files and then got in touch with their families, and so I really tried with this book to do a Band of Brothers take for the Marine Corps, just like the HBO series did with the Band of Brothers about the airborne uh, unit and uh, European campaigns. So it was very interesting when I went into this, kind of finding out this human psychology, and of sea tales and embellishments. And in this case, unfortunately, it got Woody the medal. It was an unintended consequence. He wasn't lying to uh, get the medal, but his uh, tall tales uh, ended up getting him in front of Truman to get a Medal of Honor tied around his neck. Yeah, it is a
1: very interesting Interesting story and an interesting book, and I recommend people to sit down and read it because you know you you, you like I said, you set it up where you let people know what the political uh, climate was like uh what the military and what the social climate was like, and you put it all together so it culminates with woody's story,
5: yeah
6: you know i try tried to to use Woody's story to tell the larger issues of what was going on there. So the book is, is my largest book, and thank you for the compliment about the footnotes. You know, I have 3,145 footnotes. Uh, I went to 18 different museums and archives in five countries, Japan, China, Guam, Germany, and America to document this. But, you know, getting back to Woody, I used his life to then branch off and tell the people what's going on at this time, talking about isolationism. How the war, you know, leading the events leading up to the war and how it actually started, what our mindset was in America, how we transformed our society, and how we brought down the twin thunderclaps of fascism uh, in Japan and in Germany, and how we need to be so thankful of what we did for the world at that time. And basically, one third of the world's population was under these two dictators, Hirohito and Hitler. And had they been left alone, to continue on doing what they were doing, this world would be a much darker place. But as it is now, we have strong democracies in Europe, thanks to America, especially in Germany, and we have a very strong democracy in Japan, even for all the wars that we talked about earlier on, and it's one of our strongest partners in Asia. And that's a testament to the American victory and what we did in World War II.
1: Absolutely. It's a fantastic book, and I'm telling people to check it out, Dr. Brian Mark Rigg, and the book is called Flamethrower. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us, and I welcome you back any other time, and the sky's the limit on the topics we can cover with you. Oh,
6: great. I'd be I'd be honored, you know, and hopefully people can, they can find the book on Amazon or my website, which is under my name, Brian Mark Rigg, and I appreciate you having me so much, Ann. And, yeah, anytime you want me on and whatever you want to talk about, you know, I used to teach for six years at college level on military history, human rights, and genocide. So uh, if you want to talk about those topics, I'm I'm your guy, hopefully. Absolutely. And if you do
1: teach, speak to Colin and Anne-Marie, send them my love. I've known them for about
6: 10 oh. years. Oh, will do. Colin Heaton, great guy uh, and uh, incredible historian. I'll be happy to do so. All right. God bless and thank you for the hard work you do, sir. Thank you so much, Ann. Have a great day. Take care. All right. We
1: have our next guest in on the line. And let's welcome aboard to the show. If I get the computer is acting up a little bit on my end, I apologize. Um, Putnam County Sheriff Gator Deloche. Good afternoon, Gator. How are you today?
7: I'm doing well, Annie. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. I just uh, got a little bit of a dry throat, so I'm coughing, so I apologize. Mm. Oh, no worries. Anyway, um, I want to remind people that as you're listening, we are actually broadcasting live on WTEC-FM out of uh, Columbia, South Carolina, as well as all the other networks that are carrying us. And uh, we're going through a birthing stage at this point, so anything seems a little weird. It's uh, my fault because I'm probably hitting the wrong buttons here. (laughs) Anyway, anyway. Um, Has the world gone absolutely ape? I mean, Sheriff, every time I turn around, I mean, I was a cop back in the 80s and 90s where, you know, you got called all different names in the book, but still you had the general public supporting you. And now we've got these calls for defunding the police, reforming the law enforcement. And how are you going to keep neighborhoods safe if you get rid of the one Group that could help p- to protect the innocent of life and property.
7: You know, it's incredibly frustrating, Annie. I uh, I see what's going on uh, across the world, and uh, I know you probably don't have a lot of background on me, just uh, just what Curtis has shared with you. Um, but uh, you know, here's here's me in a nutshell. I love uh, God, babies, guns, and President Trump. Um, that's uh, that sort of uh, summarizes who I am, and I look at what's going on in the world today. And uh, thank you for your service, by the way. Uh, I can say that uh, you were in law enforcement at a time when it was probably uh, a lot more fun uh, to be uh, to be in this career. Um, but you know, I I want to say that uh, you know, as, as bad as things get, I think the pendulum will eventually swing back in the other direction at some point, uh, as it uh, as it tends to do. Uh, but it's you know, it's incredibly frustrating for me. Um, on a personal and an administrative level, because, you know, we, uh, as a, a small to mid-sized agency with about 300 employees, we're constantly struggling with uh, a recruitment battle, um, not only in the law enforcement discipline, but also in uh, corrections on our jail side, and it, uh, you know, it, it just sickens me, some of the things that I hear, uh, and, you know, to see some of the, uh, the injustices on, on both sides, admittedly, um, you know, I think what happened to uh, George Floyd was uh, horrible. Uh, but, if you look at the case in Atlanta and that uh, you know that poor police officer up there that's being persecuted now uh, for doing his job and, and doing it with excellence, uh, it just uh, it, it infuriates me
0: and
1: the, the funny thing is is with what happened in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Georgia classified a stun gun as a lethal weapon. He had a lethal weapon aimed at him as he was attempting to effect the arrest of someone committing a crime so he was completely justified in that now as for george floyd that story is still coming out um but floyd was wrong to kneel on the neck period absolutely wrong sure the other
0: officers and, you know, admittedly, not intervene george
7: floyd was, was, wrong. Uh, was no saint by any stretch of the imagination but i think that uh you know it, it's it's easy in a, a case like that for us to, uh, to condemn the actions of those officers there, um, but I still want to impress upon everyone that it's, it's okay to condemn bad acts like that that we can see on their face are, are bad and, and shouldn't happen. Uh, those guys have uh, no place in law enforcement based on what they did, um, but it's still okay to appreciate the hard work and dedication of the, the men and women that put on a uniform every day to uh, keep us safe so we can sleep peacefully at night.
1: And the unfortunate thing is the bad action of one individual has created a worldwide outcry. This one individual had helped to ignite what the left has been asking for, which is anarchy. And with anarchy comes loss of life, loss of property, loss of the economy, loss of government. So much loss is we're experiencing at this point. Sooner or later, Maine, America, the heart of America, is going to start beating and saying, enough, stop. And I think we're starting to see, as you said, the pendulum to swing the other way.
7: Oh, absolutely. You know, if, if we only look back at a short period in time in history ago, uh, whenever uh, President Obama was in office, um, you know, we, we saw this, uh, this trend where uh, he would condemn the actions of law enforcement officers before having, uh, you know, a, a, the, a total set of facts, uh, which at, at, at the very least is uh, careless, if not downright negligent on his part. Um, and, you know, it infuriated me at the time to see uh, cases like um, the Brown case from uh, Ferguson um, and and some of those were the the president just uh, you know outright denounced the uh, actions of law enforcement. I got to tell you though, I was very encouraged. Uh, within just three or four days of President Trump taking office, um, he actually issued a uh, declaration vowing support for law enforcement, and it was it was really at that time that uh, you know I, I think the pendulum started to swing back in the other direction, and you know it changes. Uh, it's it's often. Title in nature, it, it ebbs and flows I, uh, I, I, I tend to be a, a glass uh, Half full kind of guy And I, I want to say that we're just in one of those uh, Doldrums right now Where we're just kind of rolling around and floundering a bit um, But I'm, I'm Cautiously optimistic that uh, We'll come out of it soon um, You know, I think that uh, This will become less of an issue um, Much like the uh, You know, the coronavirus uh, In November once the election's over with
1: you know, what is amazing is that a liberal group, uh, the National Law Enforcement Association, it's a highly liberal group, uh, went and forward to endorse President Trump, not Biden. Uh, I can't remember the last time, if ever, they did endorse a conservative or Republican president.
7: You know, unfortunately, you see that a lot. Uh, there's, there's more of a I, – and I, I certainly don't want to paint everyone with the same brush, so – I don't want this taken out of context, but generally speaking, among chiefs of police, you see a more liberal mindset than you do with uh, county sheriffs. Um, that's certainly not always the case there's uh, you know there's outliers in every group. Um, but you know I, people can uh, say or think whatever they want to say, but the reality of it is, is that under President Trump's administration, we are uh, far better off, in my opinion, than uh, we have been uh, for many, many, many years.
1: You know, um, we're, we're seeing, yes, definitely we're seeing ourselves a lot better uh, under President Trump. But what we have to do is start to help support law enforcement. Maybe they are agencies out there that may need a little bit more attention when it comes to uh, discipline uh, problems and stuff like that. But the one size fits all that people are crying for, it's not going to work. What works in New York city will not work in Putnam County. What works in Dallas, Texas will not work in Chicago. So, you know, we have to look at this as what I see is what they're trying to do. What I'm seeing is they're trying to federalize law enforcement. Now, Clinton did that when he started the community policing, tying grants to certain federal demands. And I'm seeing the same thing start to happen again.
7: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, uh, we oftentimes uh, defer applying for grants or just don't apply for them at all uh, because of some of the mandates that are uh, placed on the federal government. And, you know, you talk about... Uh, if we go back and we look at uh, places like Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, um, Minneapolis, uh, Minneapolis specifically, uh, you know, years ago they welcomed with uh, with open arms um, a, a multitude of uh, Syrian refugees, and now they're beginning, I think, finally to uh, see the error of their ways um, with inviting those refugees uh, well, I'm sure some of them are good people, but uh, the majority of them have uh, terrorist-like beliefs, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, you talk about big cities like that and corruption in government that funnels money towards uh, pet projects uh, or, or outright theft. Um, but all of these cities, the majority of them, have histories of uh, corrupt government and poor use of public funds. And I'll, I'm just going to say it like it is. Uh, they're all led by uh, liberal Democratic mayors and and governors.
1: Yeah, um, I have a comment uh, because I have the chat room going over here, and our buddy Sasquatch repeated what I've said on a previous show, with the dollars come the collars. So in other words, they're going to handcuff you. They're going to put a collar around your neck and say you either follow what I'm telling you to do or you don't and this is this is going to be a problem, you know because I read the executive order that uh, Trump had put out for the reform of um, the policing, and throughout it it is doing exactly that, using grants and other mandates to handcuff and collar police to follow federal guidelines when we don't need that, and calling all right, chokeholds. In almost every state, is illegal unless it's the last resort. So you know you're already saying that these actions are already illegal. So we don't need additional laws. We just need to enforce the current laws.
7: Thank you, thank you. You know, and I'll I'll go on record and say that I don't necessarily have a problem with reform. as long as uh, you know that reform doesn't uh, doesn't degrade those making positive changes, and we've all got to be cognizant of the fact that the reality of it is reform comes with a price, um, especially when uh, you know councils and commissions already have uh, tight budgets. Um, I'm very fortunate here uh, that uh, Curtis and I live in a, a small rural county uh, that hasn't seen the explosion of growth like we've seen in uh, seen in surrounding areas. And fortunate, they were able to invest in training. Uh, but you know, back to the uh, issue of grants that we're talking about, uh, and in the uh, you know the president's executive order on police reform, um, there's a clause in there that uh, now requires agencies to report their use of force data, which is, admittedly, probably something that uh, you know that we should be doing all along. I, I believe in uh, being as transparent as we possibly can in government. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm happy to share that data. I I was going through some uh, use of force statistics earlier, and you know, something that really just jumped out at me. Um, not to mention the you know the significant decrease in crime we've seen uh, over the last three years, which is about a almost four years, about a 37 percent drop in crime. Uh, but just last year, for example, if we take a, a picture of a window in time, and we look at uh, 2019 here in Putnam County, we had about. 2,000 jail admissions, so roughly 2,000 people arrested and, and brought into our uh, county jail here. Um, out of that, uh, you know, the uh, the use of force that we reported in, in 2019, we had 35 uh, use of force incidents total um, for the entire year. So you're talking about less than one tenth of one percent um, of cases where we use force and. We actually only had uh, two internal affairs investigations that were initiated by the agency, I might add, um, where we actually took uh, action against two of our deputies, uh, both of which unfortunately were in corrections. One where uh, a young corrections deputy um, lost his temper and uh, an inmate bumped into him and he, he threw a cup of coffee in his face and we wound up, wound up terminating him over that. And then, uh, you know, another where uh, a, a young deputy um, used a uh, – a restraint uh for an excessive period of time and we found that to uh to be uh negligent and he was terminated as well so you know this whole notion that we're not policing our own i i i can't get behind that and it's it's a completely false narrative that's uh being perp- or, uh, perpetuated by the left
1: you know it's funny that's because true. i'm an encounter that's a little bit larger than yours and we had a recent incident with a deputy um in a neighboring town, now the public is aware of what's going on out there. If they see something wrong, it becomes a news item, and action is then taken by whatever law enforcement agency. So the public is already, you know, uh, policing it. But back in the seventies, when we had the NAP Commission in New York City, they came up with something called integrity control officers. So every command had an ta- integrity control officer who knew every officer in the command kept the disciplinary log, and if someone got to be a problem, he or she would be the first person. Now, a lot of departments already have that. So I, when I'm looking at this executive order, they're basically turning around saying the attorney general is now going to be the overseer of integrity control. So this is why I have a problem with this executive order. They're, they're putting stuff under the, the attorney general's control, which should be the local prosecutor's control.
7: Absolutely no, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, you know, and this, uh, you know, this analogy that uh, that they're using, uh, you know, that there's there's one bad apple um, that that spoils it for everyone. That that doesn't hold any water with me. Um, bad apples are removed whenever there isn't systematic corruption in government. Um, but you know, if you look at places uh, with with the worst corruption, arguably uh, Chicago. Minnesota, Detroit, um, areas of New York. Um, uh, again, it goes back to uh, they're they're generally led by uh, Democratic mayors and or governors um, that uh, you know are are perpetuating this uh, this false narrative that uh, you know we're we're out there and we're we're using excessive force and beating the hell out of people on a a, a daily basis and it it just doesn't hold water with me. It's it.
4: It sickens me,
0: it angers me.
1: Gator. That it does. That it does. Go ahead, Curtis. Yes,
4: Curtis. Yeah. As we all know there's a, a movement across the country to um bring down statues and and other symbols of um slavery. And um we are a southern town. Have you heard of any any such um, movement to um to do that in Palatka, for instance, you know, pulled down um, statues of um, Southern heroes.
7: I can tell you authoritatively that there is a movement going on right now in Palatka to remove a, uh, a monument to Confederate soldiers uh, that sits on the lawn of our courthouse right now. So, yes, uh, we're, uh, you know, we're experiencing that and, and going through those, uh, those growing pains right now as we speak.
4: And are you prepared to defend those statues, or is that out of your league?
7: Uh, Curtis, your, 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 uh, I'll share with you very candidly. We have defended those uh, those statues, those memorials, and we will continue to do so. Uh, you know, it's it's certainly out of my control as sheriff. Uh, if the commission chooses to move that uh, that particular uh, monument or memorial, um, I, I certainly have no control over that. But we're going to go to we're, we're going to use whatever means necessary to uh, to defend that, that property so that it's not disturbed or destroyed um, I, I just can't get behind this notion that a uh, you know a, a statue or a memorial uh, has ever uh, harmed or, or wronged anyone
4: that's part of our history you know, it, it- Good and bad. Yeah, it is. It, it absolutely, you know. Yeah,
7: it, I, I think that the slavery is uh, horrible and should be condemned. Uh, but it's also not lost on me that I'm not aware of, uh, you know, a, a civilization that has not been enslaved uh, sometimes by their own people uh, in the course of history.
0: Oh yeah, you there know, were it, black slave because, owners. Yes. You know, and yes,
5: there were. Then, you know.
7: It, it,
0: well, uh, I'll that
1: right here in in my town here in South Carolina, I had gotten a notification from a friend of mine who's inside county government. She was warned that the very church I belong to, because it has Confederates buried in the graveyard, there would be an assault on our church graveyard. That is how crazy it has begun become, become.
7: Wow, that's that's absolutely insane absolutely insane and, and downright shameful um you know and if we look at uh, you know at african americans in law enforcement today um i tell you my heart really goes out to them i uh i, I couldn't imagine during uh, during these times um well to begin with i couldn't imagine starting a career in law enforcement right now um and furthermore uh you know just to take it up a notch i couldn't imagine being a uh, a young african American uh, starting out my career in law enforcement right now, I can tell you that i've got a, a very good friend who works in a county adjacent to us uh, who happens to be black and you know I always hear stories and uh, it's it's really uh, heightened here in the last uh, couple of months uh, him being called an uncle Tom and all sorts of uh, derogatory things. And, you know, the thing is, if that was an attack on, uh, you know, the uniform that he was wearing, that's one thing. But that's, that certainly isn't the case. This was, uh, you know, it's a, that's a personal attack. Um, and I, I just have to uh, question that. Uh, when will, when will uh, African Americans truly start to support, uh, you know, other, other black people uh, who come from uh, different walks of life and have different beliefs.
1: You know, I, I, I've seen this throughout the career I had. You know, I was attacked because I was a female. You know, I was called everything from a bull dyke to you can imagine some of the other things that I was called. Uh, sure. But when I watch these protests, if you want to call them that, I, mean, I would call it what they truly are, riot. I watched an NYPD officer. One was white. One was banning the line to hold the riot line. I thought the white officer was going to break down in tears because he watched his buddy, the up have someone a white woman come in his face and insult him, tell him he wasn't black anymore. Blah blah blah. The whole nine yards. I watched that white officer bleed his heart. Yeah, I mean, He wanted to just grab the guy and stand in front of this woman, but he held the line like we're trained to do. And how dare this woman, who's, who's exerting her, quote, white privilege, if you want to call it that, or whatever she was exerting, for Black Lives Matter, in, and insult a black man like that. He's doing his job. He's out there to protect you. And how, how dare she do that? I never hurt so much for a fellow officer as I watched that video.
7: Yeah, no, I uh, I completely agree. Uh, you know, and it's we're we've got to somehow figure out a way to overcome this as a society. And I don't claim to have all the answers, um, but you know, I just I have to think that uh, if some of these folks instead of uh, Chanting, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, um, you know, the other uh, – the chants that they do in these rallies. If, if they just wake up every morning and start singing, uh, you know, church nursery hymns like Jesus Loves Me, I mean, <laughs> that's uh, – maybe that's where the problem is. Uh, we've we've lost our way with,
4: uh, with God. That's true. Well, I, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing about what they're doing that. that has God in it. Nothing what they're Absolutely. doing has God
1: exactly. in it. Exactly. And Curtis, you mentioned earlier, and I had pulled this article out, so you and I think along the same way, this protest out in Portland, Oregon, outside of the uh, courthouse, where these mothers had their toddlers. And if you look at these toddlers, some of them may be three, four, not even five years old, carrying signs that said, F the police. Now, for me, personally, I would have arrested those mothers for child endangerment for placing them in in harm's way, knowing that these protests do get violent, I would have been out there with a bunch of handcuffs and just taking these women and said, like, your child's now going to child service. Yeah. Okay. And is it used to children should have been off-limit, but they're using them. And one little girl puts her arm up in the black power. And these kids don't understand what's going on around them, but they're being used as political pawns.
7: Sure. they have no concept of uh you know what that that message actually means um and you know y- you talk about a uh, a society that we live in that is arguably uh more tolerant of uh alternate lifestyles than uh, any in uh, in the world um you know here at uh, at my own agency um and listen i'll uh I'll be the first to say it i'm as uh Straight laced uh, heterosexual uh, American as you can get, but we've got uh, gay couples who i you know I dearly love here, um, and they know that uh, you know their their blue family here has their back uh, despite the ugly comments of how uh, you know how God wouldn't approve of them and their their baby or uh, you know a, a multiracial family that we have here um, that not only have to deal now with the uh, misguided hate from Society for being together, um, but then you compound that with the added tensions or added tensions on uh, law enforcement, or uh, you know a, a young detective who went to check on an ankle monitor, uh, and found himself staring down the gun of a barrel recently, from a person who was mad that he was there and interrupted a, a drug deal. Uh, you know, fortunately in that particular instance he had the calm to uh, be able to de-escalate that situation and uh, no shots were fired. But the bad guy went to jail and my detective went home safely, but. Uh, you know, I, I just have to think that again, we've lost our way with God, and you know, we've we've completely abandoned our moral compass here in this country.
1: Absolutely, and I don't know if Curtis told you that we start off, excuse me, each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And recently, you in Florida lost the highway trooper uh, John Joseph Bullock, and all he was doing was helping a disabled motorist, and he was executed.
4: Simply because the guy
1: thought that the tow bill was just too high. And then he goes after the tow truck driver. You know, we have lost our moral compass. I mean, nothing is that serious that you should turn around and take the life of another person unless your life itself is the one in danger. You know, self-defense is one thing, but execution of a law enforcement officer that is there to help you. He sat there for more than an hour. So that you would be safe when the toe comes, and then you turn around and blow him away. Something's yeah, wrong
7: here. Our society—something yeah,
1: has gone really wrong.
7: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I I couldn't agree more. It uh, you know it it enrages me to uh, you know to even hear uh, stories like that. It's 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 heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking.
1: And I I stood too many funerals. Uh, for fellow officers killed in the line of duty. And uh, people fail to understand we're not robots. We're not autotons. We have emotions and feelings. And we've got families. We've got kids. We've got parents. We've got aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters. We're just like you. We go home at the end of the day, take the uniform off, and then we're our neighbor. So they fail to understand that we, too, are just as human as they are. But we live in a society that today they dehumanize you, they make you a number or a unit, according to Obamacare. You're a unit, not a person. And the more they do that, the more they could control you.
7: Well, and Andy, that's I think my- Markly, we can point to the, uh, you know, the mainstream media uh, for dehumanizing law enforcement. I can tell you that I had a conversation with an insider uh, who works for a, a major broadcasting network. And they told me that uh, whenever there is news about a uh, police-involved use of force or shooting that garners national attention, that uh, their advertising rates soar and sometimes double or triple in cost. Um, and you're exactly right. Over time, it has uh, eroded the foundation that we've built uh, and the understanding that, uh, just like you said, you know, we're, we're humans just like everyone else. Um, Sometimes I uh, I let my mouth get the better of me. I can tell you that I was in a restaurant years ago, and I was uh, waiting in line to order with a couple of my zone partners. And this uh, this guy walks in and he pops off and says, uh, "Man, I sure do feel safe. Uh, who's watching uh, the streets and catching all the criminals?" And I looked uh, I looked over at the guy and I said uh, I looked down at my belt and I said. You know, we just haven't figured out a place on our uniform or on our duty belt where we can fit the solar panel. So, you know, we, we do have to occasionally eat every now and then. And the guy had this uh, puzzle book on his face. You would have thought I'd just slap the guy. And he turned around and walked out of the restaurant and left. And um, my zone partner looked over at me and he said, I sure hope we don't get complained on for that. And I said, you know what, I don't care if we do, so be it. So be it. <laughs>
1: That is a good one. Well, uh, Gator, it has been a pleasure. Um, there is a link up on the show page that if anyone wants to know about the Put- Putnam County Sheriff's Office, they can go there and check it out. They can also find you up on Facebook. I want to thank you for joining us, excuse me, and uh, hope that you do join us again.
7: It was a pleasure, Annie. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do. And, Curtis, thank you as well. I, uh, oh,
4: you're I more enjoy than welcome.
7: Your I uh, thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you guys today.
4: And we'll have you on oh, again. God
7: bless.
1: Have a great weekend. Thank
7: you
1: so much. You as well. Bye. All right. Sheriff Gator Deloche, check him out at Putnam County, Florida. Um, And uh, we got our last victim of the day. I want to welcome back to the show Jonathan Butcher of the Heritage Foundation. He serves as a senior policy analyst for the Center for Education Policy. Good afternoon and welcome back, Jonathan. Hello and good afternoon. Man, we do live in a crazy, crazy world. (laughs) <laughs> I apologize. I got a little bit of a dry throat here, so just bear with me for a second as I try to ah, get my life here together. Anyway, um, Trump has recently called for schools to reopen, and you know what? He's gotten such a backlash, especially from teachers' unions, and we were discussing this earlier in the show, that you know, it's amazing. What he should have done was done the opposite, said, let's keep the schools closed, and then there would be this cry from the left, open the schools up. You're killing our kids.
8: Uh, I think that probably would have happened. You know, several years ago when the president was elected, the teachers' unions said, and and this was broadcast in major media, that they would not work with this administration uh, or Secretary DeVos. So at least they're being consistent, um, uh, which in this case is unfortunate for students.
1: Uh, Yeah, it it is. Uh, All right. Someone just made a comment in the uh, the chat room about – my former patrol partners, but uh, no, my patrol partners are still very much alive and healthy. I've lost friends, but never a patrol partner. But you've got several great articles up on heritage. People can go to heritage.org to check you out. And I mean, the the people that you work with over at Heritage and the good work. But you know, there's a turf war going on. And it's between the unions and those that want school choice. And what we're finding because of the COVID virus, more and more parents have found homeschooling, alternative schooling, and they're seeming to like it over public schooling.
8: Well, I think that the civil society response that we're starting to see now from the shutdown of a very common public sector service in public schools Uh, is it's actually quite welcome. I mean, I think that uh, for parents to take the issue into their own hands because really they've been left with few options. Uh, And I think so when we see surveys that say that more families are thinking of homeschooling, uh, I think that's an encouraging thing. I was saying the other day that in North Carolina, uh, the website where you go to sign up for homeschooling was actually shut down a few weeks ago because so many parents had uh, uh, expressed interest and, and tried to get on the site. Uh, I think what we're seeing now are headlines about what are being called pods where neighbors are banding together, quarantining their kids together, and then hiring a teacher to come and instruct their students this fall. So I think this, you know, parents care very much about the uh, welfare of their students and, you know, they are taking matters into their own hands because they see that uh, for, you know, whether it's because of union efforts or because of, um, what has been decided in a local area uh, or because some are taking CDC guidelines guidelines to the letter uh, schools in many me- major metro areas are being closed
1: you no know, it, it's funny because you know when the covid first broke out and the schools were closed we didn't hear a lot about these students that weren't getting any sort of an education because they didn't have access to the internet or a smart device but now that the schools are starting to open and Trump is openly talking about getting kids back to school. You suddenly hear about these kids and wait a minute, where was your concern when this all started out? Where were you looking for local funding to get these kids, even if it's temporary, the devices they need?
8: Well, oh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, when the, when the physical school buildings closed it was the right thing to do for districts to move as quickly as they could to offer some sort of instruction online because that would provide even a small bit of stability for eligible families now what we saw after several weeks was that some large districts uh, didn't uh, didn't offer any instruction some districts lost thousands of students i mean l.a Detroit, we were talking about thousands of students who couldn't be accounted for. And so uh, there, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal just a week ago about how in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, the district, uh, frankly, stopped. They just ended the school year early. And uh, they just they gave student grades according to where they were before the virus broke out, which means that you've effectively lost half of a semester and not even accounted for it. So, when these districts again let 's we'll take l a for example, but we 're also talking about Atlanta, Nashville, uh, some of the larger districts in the u s they 're going to open the school just open the school year with just online classes, so if they 're not planning to do things differently than they did in the spring, parents should be very concerned
1: you know it 's funny because there was an article I believe it was out of Florida that one teacher turned around and quit his job because he was being told, you got to come back, you got to teach these kids. Well, oh, my goodness, I might catch COVID. Uh, wait a minute, there are certain guidelines, and if you adhere to the guidelines, you should be all right. Uh, but, the, but the kids, we're seeing, I think, nationwide a total of three kids under the age of 18 contracted COVID and each and every one of them had an underlying medical condition and all three were in the New York City area. But you've got people that are going off the deep end.
8: Well, and I think if families see that their child has an underlying condition like what you described, or if you're a teacher and you know that you have uh, an underlying condition or you're, you know, of an age that, would make you more susceptible, you know, there are certain considerations that, that you know, they, they should take uh, as they think about reopening school. But here's, here's the thing, for those, those students and those adults, that's a different question than saying, should we keep every child and every teacher, the average age, by the way, is 42 uh, for teachers in the U.S., should we keep every child and every teacher out of the classroom every day, five days a week, starting in the fall? And it appears to be that for some, and again, I think the, the teachers unions and other special interest groups would be included in this group, they see it as either an all or nothing deal. You know, we either have to have it completely safe, no threat of infection, and everybody goes back, or nobody goes, and we simply cannot take any unnecessary risks. And I have been saying from the beginning that the unnecessary risk that we're taking is giving students uncertainty about what the, the, what the fall is going to hold, And, you know, we're showing them that the adults cannot think creatively about what might be a way to get some sort of instruction going on. And there are examples that I'd be happy to tell you about of schools uh, that are thinking creatively about what's going to happen in the fall.
1: No, please do. Please do. Because I heard everything from plexiglass, dividing the desks, to masks, to having only 10 kids in the class. Please let us know what schools are doing that is working. Sure, and and that's some of
8: it. I mean, some of it will have to do with, you know, plexiglass dividers, but there are are other ways, right? So I was talking to a charter school up in uh, Philadelphia where they're going to have half of their students uh, online and half of their students in class Monday and Tuesday, clean the school Wednesday, get the other half in and have the other half at home on Thursday and Friday. It's not perfect. It's not ideal. However, it gets students back in person in the classroom to help keep them accountable as they think about what their classwork is for this semester. What's happened is if you just send everyone home and say, well, you know, good luck, we'll, we'll try and catch you online, there's nothing to hold, you know, some of these students accountable. And if I may say so, uh, there's also nothing to hold school district officials accountable, frankly, because uh, this is these are the situations where you had large, large districts and students just disappeared and fell off the map. And so uh, now we're talking about losing, you know, the equivalent of an entire semester or perhaps even an entire year. Um, I was talking to uh, some families using education savings accounts in North Carolina. Now this is a private school choice option uh, available to really a small number of families. Um, we're talking, you know, about 20, 25,000 families across five States in the U S however, The option is very much alive in these states, and these students can use a personal uh, savings account where a portion of their funds from the state funding formula has been deposited in that account, and they can pay for online classes, personal tutors, educational therapists, or even private school tuition. And that's critical because many private schools are trying to get back five days a week in person. I know in South Carolina, for example, Uh, Private schools are trying to do that. So, you know, there are ways here that we can um, expand the number of opportunities available to students. Last thought on that is on that very, very topic. In Oklahoma and in South Carolina, the governors of those states have used some of this federal stimulus money that came back in April from what is known as the CARES Act. Well, they've taken a portion of it and created a private school choice program because Many private schools are opening at a, um, uh, are opening for in-person class, while uh, some of the assigned district schools are not.
1: That's my governor, Governor McMaster's. Love him, love him. Yes, and it, it, he is trying to tie the dollars to the child, not the child to the school and the school to the dollars. It, it should be the money file follows the individual child, which brings me up to wondering. All this time the schools have been closed in my county, I'm wondering where my tax dollars are going. If these buildings are not being used, if these teachers are not in the classroom being paid, if these civilians are not in the offices answering the phones and emptying the garbage cans and making the meals, what is happening to my tax dollars? That's a very good question, isn't it?
8: it's It's a great question, and it's a great question about the stimulus money that came under what we were just talking about, the CARES Act, because there was a GAO report from just a couple of weeks ago that showed a small portion. I mean, we're talking in the single digits in terms of percentages of the amount of money nationwide that's actually been spent by states and schools of this money that's been distributed. Now, I understand that, you know, they passed the bill in the middle of March. The money was distributed in April. But it is now near the end of July, and to have nearly all of that money still not have been spent, according to um, the GAO, that I mean, there really needs to be an explanation for that, especially now as lawmakers are talking about adding another $105 billion uh, in federal funds in another Phase 4 uh, set of stimulus spending. I mean, look, if we're going to talk about another huge Um, Payment coming from Washington We should have some accounting Of what's been done with the money that's already been Distributed and I I would say By the way on Governor McMaster I attended The press uh, press conference Where he made the announcement about that scholarship Program and uh, he handled The question and answers From the press uh, just masterfully Uh, The press uh, I think Asked some uh, I, I would say you know Aggressive, how's that? Questioning about um, the validity of school choice, and he um, and he handled it very well, and, and he uh, he was very clear that he was focused on the end result, which is providing a quality option for as many students as South Carolina can, and uh, and he, he did
1: a he did a great job. Was that a pun on his name, McMasters, masterfully? <laughs> uh, if, if only I was so clever.
8: No, if only I was so clever.
1: <laughs> anyway, you know, there's a downside for these kids not being back in the classroom, whether it's a charter school, a private school, or even a public school. You know, these kids are developing. And what we're doing is an arrested development because they're not interacting with other children. They're not interacting with adults. Uh, And this is a major thing with a child's development.
8: Well, without question, you know, surveys have shown that um, uh, about 40% of parents in a nationally representative survey said they did not have any contact with the child's teacher on a weekly basis. Uh, A company that produces a test that's widely used across the United States called the MAP test, which is the Measures of Academic Progress. The company that created that, students will be going back to class, if they do go back to class this fall, with about 30 uh, to 50 percent of, uh, or having having lost about 30 to 50 percent of the, excuse me, the learning gains that they usually would bring back to the classroom. So we're talking about a uh, pretty significant setback and you know especially for some of these larger districts that we've been talking about Detroit uh, LA keeps coming up Chicago would sit here uh, where you already have achievement gaps between uh, students from low-income families and their middle and upper-income peers so we are already you know we're, we're going to be widening that uh, gap already I, and this is you know this is something that will then I think increase the pressure on teachers when we start talking again about resuming the process of measuring student learning and getting students back to where they need to be. So it's, you know, it's all the more reason I think that uh, the special interest groups and unions should be looking for ways to uh, help their members, frankly, and get students back on the path to, uh, um,
4: to where they need to be. But the unions are not,
1: the unions aren't doing that. So go ahead, Curtis,
4: Yeah, I was just wondering, what do you think is going to be the psychological impact on seniors? I'm talking about students who were supposed to graduate this year, and now they can.
8: Yeah, I think it's going to be very hard. I think that there's going to be a question about uh, what to do for higher education. I think there is uh, a growing concern that many colleges will – either not have students back to campus at all or that the college or the classes will only be online harvard for example has made that announcement so if you're a high school senior as you look towards the future you have the additional uncertainty of what do i do next right uh if we have a a high unemployment rate uh going into the fall if that if that remains uh, if we have uncertainty about finishing school this year, if we have uncertainty about what's going to be happening with many colleges across the U.S., that is really going to put uh, pressure on those on those students and their parents uh, as they figure out, you know, what's the next, what's the path for life for this child? Uh, there's, there's a real fear here that there will not be something productive that we can get these students invested in, whether it be school or work. And I think that is where policymakers need to come in. I think that is, uh, strict, that is squarely in their corner is creating opportunities. And I think that's why what governor McMaster has done, uh, the, uh, what's been done by lawmakers in Oklahoma to create private school scholarships. Um, I think anything that can be done here to get rid of barriers to opening, uh, small businesses, to creating jobs, all of these things, um, are squarely in, in a, uh, Uh, in the wheelhouse of lawmakers. And so they need to be looking for ways quickly now to get rid of the regulations that shouldn't have been there in the first place.
1: You know, um, Curtis raises in the chat room uh, a curious question because um, high school graduations have been, how should I say it, altered, uh, which makes you wonder whether or not these graduating classes for this year if employers will be looking at their skill set differently than someone that would have graduated the year before them. Because here you had someone that had all the interactions they needed with the school system, the tests that were needed, and whether it was regents or whatever they call these tests now today. I'm sorry, I'm a child of the 70s. Um, So I have no idea what the new tests are, but all these tests that the kids go through for their aptitude and get them placed in college, they no longer have all those benefits. So what's going to happen to them when they hit the street and hit the job market? Are they going to be at a serious disadvantage? Well, I think this is one of the areas where the routines
8: that we've gotten used to for many years and, frankly, used perhaps even as a crutch in some areas. So, for example, how well a student does on a standardized test or, um, you know, how well a student does uh, on some other aptitude test like you were describing, instead of looking at the skills that a student brings either to college or to a job. I'll give you a quick um, parallel here that I think should offer us some hope for the future. You know, before all of this pandemic set in, we had been talking for many years about um, MOOCs, Massive online open courses, and these were free college classes that were being posted online by major universities. Harvard, MIT had been doing this. Uh, Companies called Udacity and Coursera had been offering these free classes, and it was great to have this material out there, but there was a bit of a disconnect because, as you know, employers are typically looking for people to come with a degree, and then they would look at the degree and look at the student's transcript and, and, you know, decide, on at least a first pass of whether the student the student was even worth having for an interview, well, some of these MOOCs had a, created relationships with employers and established ways to send qualified students to these employers and say, hey, look, they've passed our courses here, and so even though they don't have a master's or a PhD in this you know particular area, you know we can demonstrate what sort of skill set they may have in you know, an online uh, programming language like Python or something like that. So we've been pushed, I think, by the pandemic a little closer toward that model where an employer will have to look at a candidate and decide what skills can they demonstrate that they have. And I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, I think that's a um, a way that we can uh, stop just resting in, you know, what a student was able to sit for four years and learn at college instead of saying, hey, look, you know, this student has an aptitude for this or he has developed these skills and he's taking these, you know, taking these Mm -hmm. courses. And uh, that will allow uh, um, uh, employers to identify uh, skilled employees. So, you know, I don't think it's going to solve the problem. I don't think it will get us all the way there. I don't think the pandemic will get us all the way there. But it could be a step, right? It could be a step closer.
4: So you think well, that not having a degree is not going to impact them too much because of our situation? Well, no,
1: no. Well, Curtis, here in South Carolina, these kids are graduating with their diplomas. They're just not doing it in a ceremony on the stage with everything else. They're still graduating kids, correct, uh, uh, John? They
8: did this past school year. I mean, they had they did have graduation ceremonies of some type, even if it was you know, Zoom or online or something this past year, I would anticipate in this coming school year, it'll probably be something similar. Uh, Hopefully, you know, we'll we'll be back in person. Okay. You know, I I just think because of the uncertainty with what's going on with college, what's going on with the unemployment rate right now, what's going on with finishing, you know, this K-12 school year, um, it puts employers... It gives them. A, I hope they see it as an opportunity where they can begin to look at job applicants according to what their skill set is and what they can demonstrate, as opposed to just relying on a transcript that they bring with them. You know, and, and that that I think would be an overall healthy thing for um, for students in particular, for young people who are trying to enter the job market. You know, I, I think if they can if they can demonstrate what their skills are, instead of just you know, telling someone what their GPA or what their SAT score was, you know, I I think this is, I think it's a healthy thing. Um, it won't happen all at once, but I think we're, the pandemic has kind of pushed us a little further t- toward that.
1: No, it's funny. Flycatch made a comment in the, uh, in the chat room. Something I brought up with my um, county's school uh, supervisor And uh, I had kept on asking her, and now we're now about three different ones later. We finally have someone that's listening to the people in the county. I was asking why isn't there more of a partnership between businesses and schools, and pushing more for trade training rather than saying every kid should be going into college or university. Not every student is college material. There are some that just simply are not college materials, but you want to get them to be able to have a trade that is useful in society that they're comfortable and happy with so that they can have a fulfilling life.
8: Without question, and I think you raise a really important point. I think that what college material means has changed over time you know i think that there are uh, excellent jobs and ways that we can still pursue the american dream that may not require a college degree uh, i think that there has been this idea that the only way that you can have everything you want in life is by going to college and frankly what we've learned is that's quite far from the truth i mean those who are not well prepared and move on to college, they'll take out loans, they'll struggle with the material, they'll wind up taking more time in school than normal, they'll have to take out more loans, and then they'll, you know, they may either leave college and have significant debt or they'll graduate and still have significant debt. And that, that cycle, I think, is beginning to perpetuate itself, and that's, that's a real problem, especially because Washington underwrites. You know, ninety plus percent of the student loan market. So you know, all of this pressure is falling back on the taxpayers. Um, I, I think, yeah, well, like we were talking about.
1: Well, I was going to well, say, sorry, what, what, what was, we're I'm, seeing here is like no, right. what we see here is there's a stigmatism now in our society. If you don't have that college degree, you're not someone. Uh, If if you're a plumber or electrician or a painter or a car mechanic or a baker, you're not in the same level of society as someone who has a college degree in art. And I, I think we've got our society a little lopsided here. And we have to turn around and say, hey, if I knew someone who was a plumber, who went to a trade school to become a plumber, I want him as my next door neighbor. I don't want someone with a degree in art because, sorry, I got no use for you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Sure. No, I think that's a great point.
8: And I I think just as no one should be pushed to go to college because, you know, there is no other option. No one should be pushed to be, you know, to go to a trade school uh, because that's just what someone else thinks for them. They should, they should have that choice and they should feel like they're, they should feel like they have more than one option when they're ready to finish high school. Um, And, you know, There's um, some significant research that's been done in in the past five to seven years about something called the success sequence where uh, it says that if you finish high school, get a job, and uh, don't have children outside of wedlock, you are far more likely than your peers to stay out of poverty. And so, in fact, it's not just stay out of poverty. You're far more likely to get the middle class or above. And so this is what we this is the story that we need to be telling young people today. We need to be saying, you know, finish high school, uh, have a hard look at what you feel like your next step in life should be whether it's college or a trade school, be prepared to enter the workforce and then be ready to make the right decision for yourself personally in terms of your, you know, relationships and being responsible and then you know that that will set you on the path to success. I think what's been done instead is you know, we've, we've told kids, hey, look, you know, don't worry about the personal side. Just finish high school, get yourself into college, and everything else will take care of itself. And uh, I think that's that's been the wrong message.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, people can find you at Heritage – excuse me, there we go again, dry throat, heritage.org. Jonathan, there's so much more to talk about with education and what we should be doing as a society to make it better – um, Jimmy Carter ruined our public education system, and it's now up to us to take it back. I, I always say all politics is local. You start at the local level. You start out with your dog catcher, your school boards, your local council, and we cannot change things in America unless we start from the ground up. And then we can go after rhinos like my Lindsey Graham. <laughs> but anyway, I'll take Lindsey Graham after the uh, communists running against him anyway. <laughs> Jonathan, it's been a lot of fun. There's so much more we can learn to help our kids. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It is our our pleasure, pleasure. and I welcome you back anytime. Like I said, there is so much more we could be talking about our kids. I didn't even touch upon the subject about uh, the social development of our children because they're not in school. They're not interacting socially with adults and other children and with the teachers and staff in the schools. They're the first ones to notice drug abuse, physical abuse, uh, learning disabilities. These kids are hurting because we've shut down society it's time we open up and time we do it sensibly
8: i agree it's important for local schools to be ready to uh look at what the local health officials are telling them and look at the needs of their local community and uh just because there are some who may be more vulnerable than others it is not a good reason to keep everyone out of school
1: absolutely well jonathan god bless the hard work you do and um we welcome you back any and every time. You are so much fun to speak with. Well, thank you. I'd be happy to be back. Thank you. Okay. Check out Jonathan Butcher at heritage.org. And check out all the other fantastic people that work with the Heritage Foundation. So check out heritage.org. We had great guests here, Curtis, today, um, starting with Clarence you McKee, did. which is over now at Newsmax. I'm Brian Mark Rigg mm-hmm. with his new book. Uh, which is called Flamethrower, and then your friend Gator Deloach, the Putton County Sheriff, and now Jonathan Bush with Heritage. We have next week, running for Senate out of the state of Georgia, just over the border from me, our friend Shane Hazel coming up next week. So
4: we're lining them
1: up, Curtis. So you said you got a couple of people, so send them on over to me, and we will be back. Right. I want to thank everyone that listened here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, WCETFM out of Columbia, South Carolina, iTunes, Stitcher Spreaker, iHeartRadio, all oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, <laughs> Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, SouthernSense.com. Until then, I say good night, and God bless, and we will see you next week still then.
4: Be safe.
0: Take care. <laughs> All right.